afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors for today, Tuesday, September 26, 2023. Madam Clerk, would you please call the roll? Thank you, Mr. President. Supervisor Chan. Chan present, Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey present, Supervisor Engardio. Engardio present, Supervisor Mandelman. Mandelman present, Supervisor Melgar. Melgar present, Supervisor Peskin. Present. Peskin present, Supervisor Preston. Preston present, Supervisor Ronan. Ronan present, Supervisor Safai. Safai present, Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie present, and Supervisor Walton. Walton present. Mr. President, all members are present. Thank you, Madam Clerk. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatushaloni, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatushaloni have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatushaloni community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Colleagues, please join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. <clears throat> Madam Clerk, do we have any communications? Yes, Mr. President. The board welcomes the public to attend this meeting in person here in the board's legislative chamber in City Hall, second floor, room 250. To participate remotely, this meeting is airing live on SFGov TV's channel 26, where you may view the live stream at www.sfgovtv.org. The telephone number and the meeting ID to participate are published on the agenda and streaming on your television or computer screen. As always, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., and on Tuesdays until the end of this meeting, the clerk's office is answering our phone to assist you. Just dial 415-554-5184 to send written comments to the members of the board, send a stamped letter via U.S. Post Office addressed to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, the number one, Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102, or you can send an email to bos at sfgov.org. We continue to offer interpretation assistance in Chinese, Filipino, and Spanish, beginning at the 3 p.m. special order till 7 p.m. And uh, Mr. President, that concludes my communication. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Would you please call the consent agenda? Items one through three are on consent and considered to be routine. If a member objects, an item may be removed and considered separately. Would any member like an item or items severed? Seeing none, roll call, please. On items one through three, Supervisor Melgar. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. Preston, aye. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan I, Supervisor Safai. Safai I, Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie I, Supervisor Walton. Walton I, Supervisor Chan. Chan I, Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey I, Supervisor Engardio. Engardio I, and Supervisor Mandelman. 
Mandelman I. There are 11 ayes. Those ordinances are finally passed. Next item, please. Item four, resolution to authorize the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development to expend SOMA Community Stabilization Fund dollars in an amount of $114,800 to address various impacts of destabilization on residents and businesses in the SOMA for a term to commence effective upon approval of this resolution through June 30th, 2024. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Madam Clerk, could you please call items five through seven together? Items five through seven are three resolutions that authorize the Office of Contract Administration to execute various amendments to the following contracts, all three for the purchase of technology products and specialized services on an as-needed basis, all three contracts consistent with the original five-year contract term through December 31st, 2023. Item five executes the fifth amendment to the contract with CCT Technologies, Inc., doing business as computer land of Silicon Valley, a contract uh, amount increase of 3.6 million for a new total of 66.5 million. Item six executes the fifth amendment uh, to the contract with Insight Public Sector, Inc., to increase the contract amount by 3.6 million for a new total amount of 4.8 million. And item seven, executes the fourth amendment to the contract with Zones LLC to increase the contract amount by 2,200 for a new contract amount of 26,300. Seeing no names on the roster, same house, same call. These resolutions are adopted. Next item, please. Item eight, resolution to retroactively approve the second amendment to the grant agreement between the city and the nonprofit San Francisco Marin Food Bank for the administration of the citywide grocery access program to increase the grant amount by 6.6 million for a total not to exceed amount of approximately 17.8 million and to extend the grant period through June 30th, 2024. Same house, same call, the resolution is adopted. Next item, please. Item nine, this is a resolution to approve the third amendment to the agreement between Maytree AIDS Hospice and the Department of Public Health to provide hospice services for chronically impaired residents of San Francisco to increase the agreement by approximately 4.6 million for an amount not to exceed approximately 14.1 million and to extend the term by four years through March 31st, 2027. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item. Item 10, resolution to approve and authorize the Director of Property and the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development to enter into a commercial ground lease for real property owned by the city and located at 683 Florida Street, 2070 Bryant Street, together called Commercial Property, with 681 Florida Street Commercial LLC for a 75-year lease term and one 24-year option to extend in an annual base rent of $1 to develop two adjoining ground floor commercial spaces for public benefit or community serving uses and to approve and authorize the director of property and the director of MOHCD to enter into a first amendment to residential ground lease to remove the commercial property from the leased premises between the city and 681 Florida Housing Associates LP and to adopt the appropriate findings. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item. Item 11 is a resolution to authorize the Director of Public Works to execute a professional services agreement 
with Ross Drillis Cusenberry Architecture, Inc. for the design of the new San Francisco Fire Department, the fire training facility under the Earthquake Safety and Emergency Response Bond Program, not to exceed 14 million with a five-year term, with options to extend for another two years. Leave it at that. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item. Item 12, resolution to approve the Recreation and Park Department's general manager's declaration of emergency under Administrative Code Section 6.60 for the repair and replacement of the elevators at Portsmouth Square Parking Garage with a not to exceed amount of 2.2 million. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item. Item 13, resolution to authorize the director of property to execute a third amendment to a restated 10-year commercial lease with two five-year extension options between the city as landlord and volunteers in medicine doing business as clinic by the bay as tenant for the city-owned property located at 35 Onondaga Avenue and to further enable reimbursement of up, of up to a total of approximately $2.9 million for tenant improvement costs. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item. Item 14, resolution to levy property taxes at a combined rate of approximately, rounded up to $1.18 on each $100 in valuation of taxable property for the city, the San Francisco Unified School District, the San Francisco County Office of Education, the San Francisco Community College District, the Bay Area Rapid Transit District, and the Bay Area Air Quality Management District, and to establish a pass-through rate of $7.26 per $100 of assessed value for residential tenants pursuant to Administrative Code Chapter 37 for the fiscal year ending June 30th, 2024. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item, please. Item 15 is from the Budget and Finance Committee with a recommendation of do not pass. Item 15, resolution to retroactively approve and authorize the Director of Property to amend and restate the current lease with the Lighthouse Building LLC as landlord for the city's lease of approximately 103,000 square feet of rentable square feet comprised of floors one through eight at 1155 Market Street for use by approximately nine city departments to enter into an amended and restated office lease for five years uh, through January 31st, 2028 with one five-year option to extend to January 31st, 2033, at an initial annual rent of approximately 6.6 .6 million with 3% annual increases thereafter. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Colleagues, the Budget and Finance Committee sent this with a recommendation, a unanimous recommendation of do not pass, uh, wisely so, in my opinion, to the Chair of the Budget and Finance Committee, Supervisor Chan, the floor is yours. Thank you, uh, President Peskin. Colleagues, I want to uh, first provide a little bit of context about uh, uh, the city's off office leases in general, uh, just so that uh, we should uh, really be aware of that. Um, not too long ago, this body uh, approved Fox Plaza um, office lease uh, for our city attorney uh, and, and um, but 
during the conversation, though, at that time, at the that conversation at the Budget and Finance Committee, uh, thanks to our colleague, um, Supervisor uh, Asha Safai, at that moment, have talked about this. That lease at that moment was coming before us uh, for a decade-long lease. Um, the conversation, though, uh, recognized that the real estate market has changed uh, significantly. Uh, we should reconsider uh, what we what the city should do with office leases and thinking about perhaps uh, there is an opportunity for the city to purchase uh, properties um, instead of leasing them for a better long-term investment strategy for the city's asset. Uh, then now with that, um, we're at this the Lighthouse Building LLC located at 1155 Market, this is not a good deal for the city. Uh, it was clear to us, uh, the budget and legislative analyst report uh, indicated that is actually a policy matter um, because from the time of Fox Plaza to the time now, the market has actually continued to now is actually worse than it was uh, the time that when we were discussing the Fox Plaza office lease. So clearly we have a lot of work to do. Uh, and also thanks to uh, President Peskin joining us at the Budget and Finance Committee further validate that this is the right decision to, to present to you today. Uh, why instead of, you know, uh, tabling this or, you know, turning it down at the Budget and Finance Committee, it is it should be really a decision for us to make uh, collectively as a body to uh, therefore the, it is the committee unanimously recommending back to you colleagues to say let's uh, not pass and let's not approve this office lease agreement. Thank you. So Chair Chan, you are recommending a no vote. Yes, a no vote to the legislation. Uh, because the te technically the legislation is to approve this lease. And so with your note vote, which is what we're asking, do not pass this, a note vote to the item that will allow us, the city, to perhaps uh, be able to go back and figure out a better solution for all the departments located in this, perhaps, or even a new location. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. On item 15, Madam Clerk, a roll call vote. On item 15, Supervisor Melgar. No. Melgar, no. Supervisor Peskin. No. Peskin, no. Supervisor Preston. Preston, no. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, no. Supervisor Safai. Safai, no. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, no. Supervisor Walton. Walton, no. Supervisor Chan. Chan, no. Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, no. Supervisor Rangardio. Engardio, no, and Supervisor Mandelman. No. Mandelman, no. There are 11 no's. With Supervisors Melgar, Peskin, Preston, Ronan, Safai, Stephanie, Walton, Chan, Dorsey, Engardio, and Mandelman voting no. The resolution fails. Next item, please. Item 16, this is an ordinance to amend the planning code to designate the Colombo Market Arch situated within Sydney Walton Square at 600 Front Street as a landmark and to affirm the CEQA determination and to make the appropriate findings. Roll call. On item 16, Supervisor Melgar. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. Preston, aye. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safai. Safai, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. Walton, aye. Supervisor Chan. 
Chan, I. Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, I. Supervisor Rangardio. Engardio, I. And Supervisor Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, I. There are 11 ayes. The ordinance is passed on first reading. Next item, please. Item 17, resolution to initiate an amendment to the landmark designation of the San Francisco Fire Station, number 44, located at 1298 Girard Street. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item. Item 18, resolution to approve and authorize a grant of two easements on city property located at 4840 Mission Street. The first consists of 198 square feet of land at the northwest edge of the parcel for electrical equipment and the second easement of 395 square feet of land at the northern edge of parcel uh, for gas equipment between the city and Pacific Gas and Electric Company for the purpose of providing electrical and gas utilities on city property for 100% affordable housing at no cost for a term until PG&E surrenders or abandons the easement areas or the agreement is terminated. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item. Item 19 was referred without recommendation from the Land Use and Transportation Committee. It's an ordinance to amend the planning code to reduce inclusionary housing program requirements, including requirements for projects approved under the Housing Opportunities Means Equity San Francisco Home SF program and to affirm the sequent determination and to make the appropriate findings. Same house, same nope. call. No, nope. Mr. President. I'm oh, I'm sorry, Supervisor Preston, my, regard, my regrets. No problem. Thank you, President Peskin. Um, and colleagues, when the broader inclusionary housing reduction ordinance was before this body in July, uh, I was not able to support. And in the same vein, uh, I won't be supporting this item before us today. Um, and I welcome a conversation around what changes we need to make to encourage new development, From but from the discussion to date, I really haven't seen evidence that uh, these proposals will lead to any additional development. Uh, that said, these ordinances will reduce affordable housing and crucial fees uh, while inflating land costs to make affordable housing acquisitions more expensive. So I recognize the efforts and appreciate the work of supervisors uh, Peskin and Safai and the, and the technical advisory committee and the controller, uh, but I'm not prepared to, uh, to support the item today um, and I think you know, in my opinion, the last thing we should be doing is making it harder to create affordable housing in San Francisco. And I fear, uh, as I did with the last piece of legislation, that this legislation will have that result. Thank you. Supervisor Safai. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, colleagues, just to, just to remind you, I mean, we did this already for larger projects. This is really about smaller projects in the pipeline, 10 to 24 units. Uh, we've heard from architects. Uh, small builders, engineers, people across the city, and if we're truly dedicated and mean that we want to address our housing crisis, uh, we need to pass this. This does make many of these projects much more uh, feasible to build, and so I appreciate your support, and, and that's the reason why we did it. We really wanted to not leave out the little guy and make sure that we're building as many of these units as possible. And and. Yes, reducing the inclusionary was an intended goal uh, when we increased it many years ago that when the economy slowed down that we would reduce it when it was necessary. So um, thank you. Thank you for support. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. Roll call. On item, item 19, Supervisor Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. 
Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston? No. Preston, no. Supervisor Ronan? Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safayi? Aye. Safayi, aye. Supervisor Stephanie? Aye. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton? Walton, aye. Supervisor Chan? Aye. Chan, aye. Supervisor Dorsey? Aye. Dorsey, aye. Supervisor Rangardio? Engardio, aye. And Supervisor Mandelman? Aye. Mandelman, aye. There are nine ayes and there are, excuse me, 10 ayes and one no, with Supervisor Preston voting no. The ordinance is passed on first reading. Next item, please. Item 20, this is an ordinance to amend the administrative code to provide that tenants may elect to be accompanied by a tenant association representative at meetings with their landlord to set rules for the duration of an attendance at meetings of the full tenant association to provide that a tenant association remains in good standing unless it has failed to recertify or a new tenant association has been certified and to make clarifying changes regarding the obligation of landlords and tenant associations to confer in good faith. Roll call. On item 20, Supervisor Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safayi. Safayi, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, I, Supervisor Walton. Walton, I, Supervisor Chan. Chan, I, Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, I, Supervisor Engardio. Engardio, I. And Supervisor Mandelman. I. Mandelman, I. There are 11 eyes. The ordinance is passed on first reading. Next item, please. Oh, I should say item 22, committee reports. Yes. Items 22 through 24 were considered by the Homeless and Behavioral Health Select Committee at a regular meeting on Friday, September 22nd, and were forwarded as committee reports. Item 22, resolution to approve the 2023 grant application for the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development Continuum of Care in an amount not to exceed approximately $60.8 million and to fulfill the Board of Supervisors review and approval process for all annual or otherwise reoccurring grants of five million or more. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Item 23. Item 23, resolution to approve and authorize a loan agreement with 440 Geary LLC in an amount not to exceed approximately 47.3 million for a minimum loan term of 55 years to provide permanent financing for a 122-unit single-room occupancy residential building consisting of 121 units of permanent supportive housing, two homeless households, one manager unit, and two ancillary ground floor commercial units located at 440 Geary Street and to adopt the appropriate findings. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item, please. Item 24, resolution to approve and authorize the Director of Property on behalf of the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing to acquire certain property located at 42 Otis Street for a total anticipated amount of approximately $14.2 million and to affirm the CEQA determination and to make the appropriate findings. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Let's go to roll call for introduction, starting with Supervisor Melgar. Supervisor Melgar. Uh, thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, I will submit today, but would like to be re referred to after Supervisor Engardio makes his introduction. Okay. Thank you, Supervisor Melgar. Supervisor Peskin. 
Thank you, Madam Clerk. I will submit my legislation, but today would sadly like to adjourn in the memory of a remarkable young man who lost his battle with brain cancer a week before his birthday uh, and left a very big hole in the North Beach community as well as in the hearts of his loved ones. Uh, I first met Auden Terrain Schrader uh, through my friend and neighbor, the author Gary Camilla, who was covering Auden's battle with brain cancer uh, and the insane amount of out-of-pocket healthcare expenses this young man was having to endure. Gary reached out with a compassionate, uh, sweet request, uh, which was whether I could facilitate an expedited wedding for Auden and his true love, Brianna Harvey, uh, giving, given their race against time and his disease. Uh, the first thing I did was call Supervisor Stephanie, who got me hooked up with the county clerk. Uh, the second thing I did, because I was out of the country uh, for our winter break, was to ask my chief of staff, Sonny Angulo, uh, to preside over said wedding, uh, and she braved the great Southwest meltdown of last year and flew back to San Francisco and officiated uh, the union of this extraordinary couple in a beautiful ceremony uh, outside here in the Rotunda. Uh, Auden was a healthcare worker and an, and an avid environmentalist who inspired and endeared himself to all who had the privilege to know him. He met his wife, Bree, in the summer of 2019, and with the exception of one day that passed between their first and second dates, they were basically together every day and night since that first date. In the three and a half years they were together before marrying, they built quite the life together, traveled the world, sailed remote seas, endured the global pandemic, endured the bureaucracy and red tape of our healthcare system, and became dog parents to Bobo. They navigated endless uncertainty together as they fought the most deadly cancer known to humanity. Their wedding day was the happiest day of his life, of Auden's life. A week before his birthday last Friday, he finally lost that battle. Bree and his family led a beautiful candlelight vigil in Washington Square, their favorite park in the city. Ever a green San Franciscan at heart, Auden chose to leave life as little with as little of an environmental footprint as possible and requested arrangements to be composted and hopefully help other living things grow in his beloved San Francisco. Auden was magnificently special. He touched lives all over, and even in the depths of his sickness, he was concerned for everyone around him and always sharing his talents with this North Beach village of ours and strangers alike. I want to extend my and, super, and uh, my chief of staff's sincere condolences to Auden's wife, Bree, and to his entire family and extended community. Please know he is in our hearts, and the lives he has touched will continue to benefit from his compassion and kindness for many, many years to come. The rest I submit. Thank you, Mr. President. Supervisor Preston. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, several items today. First, uh, colleagues, I'm introducing a resolution urging the Municipal Transportation uh, Agency to develop and implement a plan for no turn on red uh, restrictions across San Francisco. Allowing turns on red results in uh, deaths, injuries, and collisions, as well as cars blocking or driving through crosswalks, uh, making it more dangerous and stressful for people to cross the street, especially for seniors, 
children uh, and people with disabilities. Uh, prohibiting turns on red is a low-cost measure uh, that can help keep crosswalks clear and reduce uh, close uh, calls and uh, vehicle and pedestrian and vehicle bicycle conflicts um, and increase safety for all. Uh, colleagues, we already have no turn on red uh, at approximately 110 intersections in San Francisco. It's about 9% of the traffic of all traffic signals. Um, that includes a blanket no turn on red restriction uh, in the tenderloin, including 50 locations. And I want to thank the MTA uh, for their work on that, as well as uh, former supervisor, now assembly member Matt Haney. Um, these bans have proven to be very effective in San Francisco. The 2021 SFMTA study on the no turn on red implementation in the tenderloin showed that 92% of motorists complied with the new restriction. Um, there was an 80% decrease in close calls. Um, and there was a 70% decrease in vehicles blocking or encroaching the crosswalks during red lights. With the successful no turn on red implementation, the tenderloin and the tragic increases citywide in traffic fatalities, which we discussed this morning at the TA uh, in the Vision Zero uh, presentation, um, we should be expanding no turn on red to every neighborhood, uh, particularly every street on the high injury network, as well as any intersections where we're already working um, on quick build speed reductions or other uh, improvements uh, to the intersections. With your support, colleagues, uh, if, if our resolution passes, we look forward to the MTA presenting its plan for expansion of no turn on red. Um, it's my hope that we will follow New York City's lead and become the second largest city in the country to ban these problematic turns that put cyclists and pedestrians, especially seniors and persons with disabilities and children uh, in harm's way far too often. Uh, several other large cities like uh, Washington, D.C. and Seattle have also begun implementing vans, bans to varying degrees as well. Um, I think it's important to recognize banning turns on red won't solve everything, uh, but it's an important step in the right direction. It's a step we need to take as a city as we continue to struggle to meet our Vision Zero goals of eliminating traffic fatalities by 2024. Uh, I want to thank Luke Bornheimer, uh, the lead organizer behind the citywide No Turn on Red campaign, um, and the thousands of San Franciscans who signed a petition calling on the city to ban right turns on red. I also want to thank the MTA staff for their work, uh, as I mentioned, on the Tenderloin pilot, uh, and also their openness to collaborating and expanding to additional neighborhoods and intersections. So I hope this is something everyone can come together to support and implement as quickly as possible. Second, uh, colleagues, I'm introducing a resolution putting the Board of Supervisors on record in support of uh, an important letter that the mayor issued to uh, coalitions applying for the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund and also urging uh, city departments to prepare for the creation of a green bank. Uh, I'm really excited to see the administration's commitment to partnering with coalitions that are applying for the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, GGRF, um, and the letter of support recently submitted by the mayor and the work of the reinvestment working group that, that uh, we set up for the public bank uh, discussions and plan development um, have really set the city up to be prepared to collaborate with recipients of national clean investment funds to create and implement a robust national transa transaction pipeline of green projects. The reinvestment working groups created a blueprint for the city to quickly create our own green bank, 
with uh, its plan for a municipal finance uh, corporation, which has previously been approved by the board, um, creating a San Francisco Green Bank is the only way uh, that we will be able to directly apply for funding next year from the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund uh, awardees. The, the Green Bank would then leverage philanthropic funding and private capital to maximize funding for the city's clean energy future with a focus on our low-income and, and uh, vulnerable communities. Uh, GGRF funding for a local green bank will dramatically accelerate our ability to modernize affordable housing with energy efficiency and electrification retrofits, support zero emission modes of transportation, expand rooftop solar with battery storage, um, and uh, excited for this work to move forward. I want to thank uh, Executive Officer Jeremy Pollack, uh, as well as the team at LAFCO, the uh, PUC, Department of the Environment, Treasurer's Office, and the Mayor's Office for collaborating to ensure the city submitted a, a letter to support coalitions applying for greenhouse gas reduction uh, and continuing to support our efforts to create a green bank here in San Francisco. Um, and finally, colleagues, I'm uh, calling for a hearing on the pilot UN activation project and relocation of the heart of the city farmers market. Uh, colleagues, as, as you know, last week um, the GAO committee uh, heard our resolution um, that was uh, expressing concern about the process of relocating the farmers market, uh, urging Rec Park to share information with the public on the activation project and asking uh, the Recreation and Parks Department uh, to make commitments to mitigation measures requested by the farmer's market to help ensure the market's ongoing success. Um, that resolution will be uh, before the board next week for approval. Um, but you know, one of our goals in sending the resolution to committee rather than hearing it uh, on the adoption without committee refer reference calendar um, was at to at long last have a forum for the public to hear from Rec Park about their plans on UN Plaza um, and to put uh, some commitments to the farmer's market and to the community on the record. Unfortunately, uh, Rec Park refused to send a representative to the hearing despite multiple requests from our office well uh, in advance of the hearing. I will say, colleagues, this is unprecedented in my two and a half years as chair of GAO. Um, this was the first meaningful opportunity the public had to learn about and comment on the pilot activation plan for UN Plaza and the farmer's market relocation. Um, by refusing to work with community leaders and stakeholders before filing this plan with the planning department and then by not showing up at the GAO oversight hearing on UN Plaza uh, and refusing to answer many basic questions about the plan, Rec Park has sent a regrettable and completely unacceptable message to community members, to farmers, vendors, and patrons of the farmer's market and the entire community as well as this board of supervisors. It's obvious that there's going is an ongoing need for oversight and transparency on this project. I'm specifically calling for Rec Park and their partner, the Civic Center Community Benefits District, to attend the, this uh, hearing that we are uh, introducing and announcing today and lay out their plans for UM Plaza and plans for the farmer's market. My constituents in the Tenderloin, the farmer's market, and all the vendors, farmers, and patrons um, 
deserve nothing less. And I want to say this, if we do not receive a prompt written commitment from Rec Park and from the Civic Center CBD that they will be present to provide responses to our questions and lay out the plans in person at the hearing, uh, we are prepared to issue subpoenas to compel their attendance and compel the production of documents. Uh, I want to be clear, I don't take issuing subpoenas lightly, especially not when they are directed to another uh, city, to a city department, um, and I would very much like to avoid that step. Uh, but there, ha there has been an ongoing pattern of not sharing information with the board and the public that is no way to conduct business, especially when that business involves spending an estimated $1.8 million and jeopardizing the future of the beloved heart of the city farmer's market, which has successfully thrived for 42 years on UN Plaza. The rest I submit. Thank you, Supervisor Preston. Supervisor Ronan. Are, are there no um, certificates of honor today? Just checking. Oh, no. Any new business? Oh, no, I was just checking because it's past 2.30. Oh, I did not. No one told no. me that. No. But I am happy to go to a 2.30 special order commendation. I'm happy, to, I'm happy to make comments, but I thought I'd check first. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. Um, colleagues, I'll submit my legislation, but I just wanted to make a few comments about um, what I find a very disturbing uh, announcement that the mayor uh, and, and several members of the Board of Supervisors made today about um, uh, potentially taking away uh, the very limited um, financial assistance that this city gives to the poor. Um, I want to start out by just saying if uh, I, I've never been addicted to opi opioids and if you have never been addicted to opioids, um, I would highly recommend reading Barbara Kingsolver's new book, Demon Copperhead. It, 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 it's a first person account of someone uh, who becomes addicted to opioids and I think it does a remarkable job of explaining what that's like, what that feels like. Originally, people generally used opioids to escape from pain, whether it's physical, you have an injury, um, or mental, that you've been subjected to trauma. Uh, in fact, the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma, all the lawsuits that we've recently settled and got millions of dollars from, they capitalized on the amount of pain that Americans feel, Maybe many working class people from, who get injured at working class jobs. Um, and they very purposefully and very deliberately got people addicted to opioids uh, to make bil billions and billions of dollars. Um, so what happens is you originally take those opioids to escape the pain you're feeling, but pretty soon when you become very addicted, you're no longer escaping the pain you originally tried to escape. You're escaping the pain that comes from withdrawal which can happen if you don't constantly use opioids or, or fentanyl. So you become stuck in a cycle that's a living hell. You originally took the drugs to escape pain, and now you have to take the drugs, otherwise you'll have even more pain. And so during this awful process, this awful medical process that happens to drug users who live in, in hell, they often lose all their dignity, all hope, all sense of self-love, 
all sense that uh, there's really any reason to live anymore. And so despite this fact, um, uh, and despite the fact that the rich use drugs as much as the poor, uh, the mayor, Supervisor Dorsey, and several others today announced that if the poor that are on public assistance don't submit to um, an analysis and potentially drug te testing or drug treatment, that we're going to take away their money. So in other words, we're going to hit you over the head with more punishment. You know, she's already locking them up. Uh, she's already, uh, you know, um, uh, said that compassion kills. But now we're also going to take away the little money you have to live. And, and let me just talk about these punitive measures as a way of dealing with a medical problem. Care Not Cash was one of those punitive measures, right? Care Not Cash was like, it's your fault you're homeless, so we're going to take away your public assistance and make it that much harder for you to find a place to live. Look how successful Care Not Cash has been. We've had it on the books for decades. Are the streets better? Do you see less homeless people or more? Recovery often takes many, many times. Anyone you talk to will tell you that you have to go through recovery oftentimes several times before you're successful in getting clean. Guess what you also need for recovery to work? You need a little bit of self-love. You need a little bit of hope that you can get better. You need a little bit of dignity to believe that you can change your life and get clean and get better. So I have to say that just from a common sense measure, I mean, I could, I could, I could spout statistics, I could, you know, name a list of addiction medicine doctors a mile long who will tell you that punishment for people that are already living in such pain due to poverty, systemic racism, and a medical addiction that is in, really, really difficult to, to, to help doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but let me just end by saying a couple of things. If you look at the people dying in San Francisco from overdose, the, you know, the record numbers every single year, um, the vast majority per population are, are African-American and Latino. Like the numbers, look at these charts, see those huge long lines? Those are all African-American and Latino folks. Guess what? African-Americans make up 5% of the population of San Francisco, but are by far the population dying the most. Do you think that's an accident? No, that's called racism. That's called poverty. That's called, uh, you know, people who grew up in the foster care system. So do we really think that the best way to get people better is by kicking them more when they're down? I submit that that is not the answer, that the answer is that we need doctors leading this process. We don't need the criminal justice system. We need medical professionals. We need therapists. We need to build trust with people. We need to give them hope. We need to treat people with dignity. We need to bring them inside and say, don't die. Like you are worth, your life is worth living. Let's help you find whatever it is that you need in order to get better. The war on drugs 
punishing poor people for being poor, punishing sick people for being sick, are the methods that we have used for decades in this country. If they would have worked, they would have worked by now. Let's not double down on those failed strategies. Let's start believing that we can give the medical treatment, the care, the dignity, and the compassion to save lives and to get people into recovery that works. The rest I will submit. Thank you, Supervisor Ronan. Supervisor Safai. I have not received any 2.30 recommendation requests. Thank you. Just wanted to make Commendation sure. Commendation requests. I just wanted to help President Peskin stay on top of time. <laughs> just teasing. <laughs> Here's how it works. You're supposed to have submitted commendation requests yesterday, and I got none. <laughs> Just teasing you. Um, okay. So, uh, colleagues, uh, today I introduce uh, an ordinance. I want to thank uh, my co-sponsors, Supervisor Ronan, uh, Supervisor Engardio, uh, Supervisor Peskin, and Supervisor Chan uh, for supporting uh, this measure here today. Um, I don't think anyone has to question whether or not every neighborhood, every portion of the city is experiencing crime in one way or another. It's different in different parts of the city, but it's affecting everybody. Uh, we need better leadership on this issue, and today we put forward an ordinance that requires, no longer requests, but requires <laughs> that every captain in every police district in the city uh, work with the chief uh, to put together a footbeat plan to put officers back out on the street. We're hearing from every corner of the city, regardless of what the crime is, folks want to see officers in the community proactively doing community policing. Study after study after study has proven that when you put officers in the community, you get nothing but positive results and crime drops dramatically. So we put forward this ordinance today. Again, I thank uh, my co-sponsors. Um, it's time for strong leadership on this issue. It has been lacking dramatically. People are absolutely frustrated everywhere I go with the type of crime that's impacting this city. So again, I want to thank my co-sponsors. I um, want to say we look forward to working uh, with the chief, uh, but we believe that the time has come to put officers back out on the streets. Uh, thank you. And I would like to be re-referred uh, to speak after uh, Supervisor Dorsey. After Supervisor Engardio? Dorsey. Oh, after, okay. When he speaks, thank you. it's his turn. Supervisor thank you. Stephanie. Submit, thank you. Supervisor Walton. Thank you so much, Madam Clerk. Colleagues, today I have two in memoriams. Uh, the first is for Mr. Francis Ho, a beloved husband, father, brother-in-law, uncle, and friend. Francis was a Visitation Valley resident who passed away peacefully on Tuesday, September 12th, surrounded by his family. He was 87 years old. Francis was born on February 15, 1936, in Canton, China, to the late Sun Ho and Choi Ho. Francis came from a large family and was one of nine children. He spent his early childhood in Canton, China, before moving to Hong Kong at the age of 10. In Hong Kong, he helped with the family lumber business while going to school. In the 1960s, Francis met his wife, Rosanna, at church, and he knew immediately when he saw her 
that he wanted to be more than friends. They were married in 1975 and moved to the United States in the 80s. In 2023, they celebrated 48 years of marriage, 41 of which they resided in San Francisco. Francis had a passion for interior renovations. He enjoyed watching sports, drinking coffee, and was an avid Mahjong player. Trips to the racetrack were considered a favorite pastime. Throughout his life, Francis touched the hearts of those around him with his kindness, generosity, and warm spirit. He will be remembered not only as a dedicated, quiet family man, but also as a friend to many, always ready to lend a helping hand. Francis Ho's legacy lives on through the memories and the love he shared with his family and friends. He will be deeply missed by all who had the privilege of knowing him. He was a devoted family man known for his unwavering love and commitment. He is survived by his loving wife, Rosanna, and their two cherished sons, Simon and Andrew. On behalf of the entire District 10 family, we send our love and condolences to you, Andrew, and to your family. The next in memoriam is in honor of Double Rock Baptist Church pastor, Reynard Hillis. Pastor Hillis was born in San Francisco. He is the younger brother of two sons, born to R.H. Hillis and Janine Elizabeth Parker Hillis. In the spring of 1970, the family relocated to Houston, Texas, and he knew at an early age the calling of God was upon his life, and he confessed his call to preach the gospel at age nine. On the third Sunday in February 1975, he preached his first sermon under the leadership of his grandfather, the late Reverend S.B. Parker, at the Greater Zion Missionary Baptist Church. At the age of 13, Reverend Hillis started his religious education when his mother enrolled him at the Civil Union Bible College. In his upbringing, he enjoyed sports, particularly football, also speech, drama, singing in the choir, and playing in the marching band. He graduated from the Booker T. Washington High School in the spring of 1984. Following high school graduation, he attended Bishop College and graduated in the summer of 1988 with a degree in religion, religion, and philosophy. Pastor Hillis is the father of five children. During his life, he enjoyed curriculum writing, planning, teaching, preaching, reading, movies, and cooking. His vision for Double Rock Baptist Church was to actively engage community and not just be a place of worship, but also a place where community felt welcome and supported. Over the past few years, I have had the opportunity to work with Pastor Hillis to address food insecurity, internet access for young people and community, and we checked in regularly with other Bayview pastors to address constituent needs. The Double Rock family found in him to be a generous spirit, happy to preach and teach God's word. Pastor Hillis believed there is no limit to the blessings God has in store for Double Rock Baptist Church and the Bayview Hunters Point community. The rest I submit. Thank you, Supervisor Walton. Next up to introduce new business, Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, I'll be submitting legislations today, but I just wanted to follow up and um, 
quickly make comment about as a co-sponsor to Supervisor Safai's legislation requiring uh, foot beat and bike beat uh, from our police department. Um, you know, I, I uh, have the good fortune to work in this building um, since I was 25 years old. And uh, that's a long time ago. <laughs> As a legislative aide to Supervisor Sophie Maxwell then, that's how I started my work. Um, and at that time, I want to say, like, even then, Supervisor, former Supervisor Ross McGrimmie already wanted to make the demands of uh, community policing and foot patrol, recognizing that truly uh, when it comes to public safety, two key points, and uh, one is really prevention, of crime, and that's really what can keep us, many of us, safe and be fallen into victims. And the second, it's also true safety is a police departments that builds the relationship with the city it serves and build relationship with the communities that it serves. And the idea of asking for community policing plan, which is also, again, former Supervisor Gordon Marr actually had a legislation, this body approved to say, yes, we want to see community policing, to now we're saying, please, but really we want you to by mandating you to do so. Um, not in a bit of it is to somehow dictate a police department to do its work, but to really a way to say, as the city that really uh, see the rise of property crime, that people not feeling, ha not having a sense of security, uh, seeing uh, that you know businesses expressing the similar sentiment. Um, I, I think it is time to make that commitment and state that commitment that we want a police department that builds relationship with our communities, with our residents, and with our merchants. Um, it's the reason why I sign on on this uh, legislation. Uh, I, I think that what it is, what it really does, it's really help us to have a conversation to what um, really policing, responsible, effective policing means in San Francisco. Uh, I, I, uh, so it's the reason why I co-sponsored the legislation and I look forward to seeing how those conversations take place. Um, wanted to also just follow up and respond to, just wanna thank uh, Supervisor Ronan through uh, our board president for her leadership to always speak out and speak for those who can't speak for themselves, didn't have the chance, didn't have the space, uh, and the most vulnerable population, not just in this city, but in this nation. People that fall, often fallen through prey to uh, the predators of this systemic racism uh, uh, government and, and also uh, system throughout, uh, not just San Francisco, but the nation. And to think for me, like to really again think about um, how it's oftentimes seeing the last week that we had a conversation about reparation and thinking about how we all have that commitment to support the black population in this city. And then this week to see that as shown by Supervisor Ronan's statistic that that very same population often uh, being victimized by this very same system that they've been fighting against for centuries. So I, I think that it is time for us to take a step back as policymakers to really think it through and be like, 
the policies that we put forward is seems to um, contradictory and it doesn't make any sense, is not yielding the results that we, I thought that we all share. Um, I think we want a safer, a better San Francisco, not just for one type of population, but everyone. And that's what San Francisco has always been about. Um, it's the reason why we are the sanctuary city. Um, I'm now rambling, but at times I start to get kind of confused. Am I living in Texas or am I living in San Francisco? I thought I'm living in San Francisco. It's the reason why my mother, my single mother, came to the city, raising her two children, and be able to take roots and survive because she knew that this is the city for me and my brother to grow up, to be, have a better future. Not Texas, <laughs> we didn't go there, because again, we know that this is a city with diversity, with love, and a sanctuary for everyone, even the most vulnerable, actually, especially the most vulnerable, that people come here because they need help and they seek help and they need all the support that they can get, um, that we, a city with $14 billion budget, can provide. We have 7% of billionaires in the world living in San Francisco. There's no reason that why we have to mean testing people to get the help that they need and they deserve. It, it is just unacceptable. We cannot do this. It's not a city that I represent. It's not the city that I grew up in. Something is wrong here. And I think we all need to take a step back and have some self-reflection. Uh, not just inside this chamber, but all up and down this building. Thank you. Mr. President, it's just moments before 3 p.m. I can uh, call Supervisor Dorsey and then... Yeah, why don't you call Supervisor Dorsey? Right, Supervisor Dorsey. Okay. Uh, thank you, Madam Clerk. Colleagues, today, together with Supervisor Ostro Safai, I am introducing a resolution recognizing October as Filipino American Heritage Month. I am incredibly proud to represent the cultural home of San Francisco's Filipino community in District 6, and I know that Supervisor Safai is equally proud to represent the city's largest Filipino community by population in District 11. And we look forward to events and celebrations that will be taking place throughout next month. The uh, history of the Filipino community in San Francisco is one of incredible resilience and enduring influence from the I-Hotel evictions to fighting redevelopment, displacement, and gentrification to efforts to expand the opportunities for rent uh, stabilization and rent-controlled housing today. Um, I have often noted that I am myself the beneficiary of Filipino community activism that saved Trinity Plaza tenants from eviction, including many elderly and low-income residents and families, many of whom are my neighbors today. Uh, working closely with my predecessor, Supervisor Chris Daly, they secured housing for existing tenants in Trinity Place. And more than that, they won groundbreaking concessions like expanding rent control to new units. Um, I myself have been a Trinity Place resident since its first building opened uh, more than a dozen years ago, and the accomplishments of my neighbors and the Filipino community leaders to expand rent stabilization beyond 1979 and earlier units created a model to expand rent-controlled housing stock in our city, and I have had the opportunity to do uh, some work on that with um, Board President Peskin and I and the legislation we co-sponsored 
to add rent stabilization as an affordability option for the Home SF program. In 2016, the city and county of San Francisco officially formed the Soma Pilipinas Cultural Heritage District, which is home to many incredible community and arts organizations for the Filipino community, including West Bay, United Players, Galangbata, Bayanahan Equity Center, Cultivate Labs, Colarts, Bill Soro Housing Program, and others. I look forward to celebrating next month with those community organizations, with all of my fellow parishioners at St. Patrick's Church, and with the many Filipino community members, Supervisor Safai and I both represent in our respective districts. So look for announcements to come from our offices as we celebrate Filipino Heritage Month next month. I submit the rest and respectfully request to re-refer to Supervisor Safai. Thank you, Supervisor Dorsey. Madam Clerk, could you please go to our special order 3 p.m. Board of Supervisors sitting as a committee of the whole, item 21. Yes, the committee of the whole is to host a public hearing on the Laguna Honda Hospital strategy for recertification and the submission of a closure and patient transfer and relocation plan and to request the Department of Public Health to present. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Colleagues, we are now sitting as a committee of the whole mm. to discuss Laguna Honda Hospital strategy for recertification and the submission of a closure and patient transfer and relocation plan for which obviously we are all aware we have very good news. Uh, Supervisor Melgar will, as she has in the past, take the lead on these discussions. Supervisor Melgar, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, uh, President Peskin and colleagues. Um, it is good news, you have all read, but we're not quite there yet. And because this is of such high importance, uh, for the city and because as you all know, we are not yet at the point where we can take uh, transfers in nor um, have resolved things with Medicare. Um, I thought that it would be really important to have everybody understand what's going on, be on the same page, and I'm really grateful that the folks um, from the Department of Public Health are here to uh, give their update. So we have uh, Mr. Pickens and Ms. Simon here who will um, answer questions and give a presentation. Um, and I just want to um, say a few things. First of all, welcome to Sandra Simon, uh, who is our new uh, CEO at Laguna Honda. Uh, Sandra comes with years and years of experience as an administrative or, or an administrator of nursing homes. And that is really important. Uh, as you will remember, that was one of the things that was pointed out to us um, in uh, the audit. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm really grateful that she was able to step in. Uh, she did spend many years of her career at the Jewish home in San Francisco. Um, so she is very familiar uh, with our patient population and uh, with our city. So um, all of us in San Francisco feel a great sense of pride of everything that we've done up until now to save Laguna Honda. Uh, I'm sincerely grateful to so many people. I just want to name a few, uh, starting with Mayor Breed and her staff, City Attorney David Chu, uh, Julie Van Nostrin, Arnulfo Mendina, Henry Lifton, Tara Steely, Sarah Eisenberg, Louise Simpson, Glenn Levy, Michael Gercho, 
um, Jesse Smith, Yvonne Murray, and Mark Lipton at the city attorney's office. Um, and our former city attorney, Louise Rennie, who also did a lot of the heavy lifting. Uh, most importantly, the employees at Laguna Honda, the doctors, nurses, custodians, administrators, facilities folks. Uh, it was truly a team effort to get everyone uh, up to speed, recertified, retrained, and ready to go. Um, I'm confident that we will have a better Laguna Honda that serves uh, San Francisco well over the next generation. And as many as of you know, the California Department of Public Health and uh, Department of Healthcare Services recertified uh, Laguna Honda Hospital in the Medicaid as a Medicaid provider. Um, that is 95% of the residents that are supported um, at the facility through Medi-Cal, but we still have a Medicare recertification that we have to go through. We have submitted the application, but we have not had either the audit or been recertified, and we will hear from Mr. Pickens about that. Um, the recertification was because the staff at Laguna Honda has proved in multiple rigorous surveys that the, we could meet the highest standard of resident care and safety, fire, life safety, and operations. So I would like to welcome Roland Pickens and Sandra Simon, and I want to thank them both in advance for your presentation. And we also have several city staff who are, uh, you know, online or here uh, to answer any questions we may have, and that's Troy Williams, uh, Baljeet Sangha, Dr. Navina Baba, and uh, Greg Wagner, whom we all know because he takes care of the money. Okay, so uh, thank you and welcome. Mr. Pickens, good afternoon. Good, af good afternoon, President Peskin. Good afternoon, members of the, of the board. Roland Pickens, uh, director of the San Francisco Health Network, and transitioning out of my role as interim Laguna Honda CEO and passing the helm to our new leader, Sandra Simon. And wanted to get the opportunity for you to see her, uh, meet her. She's met some of you, and I'm sure we'll be making the rounds to meet all of you. But we're so pleased, as Supervisor Melgar said, to have someone of Sandra's caliber come and help lead the helm at Laguna to realize our dream of making it a five-star uh, skilled nursing facility and the best skilled nursing facility in the country. So we're going to go ahead and start our presentation, and we'll, of course, be here to uh, answer any questions you might have. First slide. So Laguna Honda has made tremendous progress in our journey for, to achieve full recertification to secure our future for another 150 years. The California Department of Public Health and the California Department of Healthcare Services recertified Laguna Honda in the Medicaid provider program, which as you know, funds more than 95% of our resident care. This was an extraordinary achievement and represents the, the collective efforts of our staff, our union partners, you, our government and other leaders, and many advocates within the community. This journey uh, could not have proceeded in the fashion it has without your support. And the journey is not over, which we'll talk a little bit more about in this presentation. Currently, we're working towards recertification into the Medicare program with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and we've submitted our application. Next slide. 
We are now preparing for a thorough and rigorous facility-wide full CMS Medicare certification that can come at any time. We applied for Medicare recertification because of the tremendous progress we've made over the last 18 months and our confidence that we're ready to show again that we can and do consistently meet the highest standards for patient care, safety, fire life safety, and daily operations. Because Laguna has been recertified in the Medicaid provider program, we are so fortunate and are appreciative of the fact that those involuntary discharges that were scheduled to take effect on September 19th will no longer move forward. This was a great relief to our entire Laguna Honda community. And again, thanks to all of you and the many others who helped make this achievement possible. However, please note, Laguna Honda continues to uh, transfer patients who no longer have skilled needs uh, uh, that make them eligible for services at, Lag at Laguna Honda or who have completed their care plans uh, and no longer meet the patient profile at Laguna. Next slide. I'd like to address some of the uh, common questions about our recertification journey uh, that have arisen as of late. First, there have been questions about when will Laguna Honda begin admitting new patients? So while we are eager to do so, we will only admit new patients once we determine that the improvements we've made over the last few months are sustained for the long term. It's crucial that we wait until this upcoming full Medicare survey is complete to see what their findings are and then what improvements we will meet, need to make based upon those findings in the form of a plan of correction. That is the standard process. Whenever there's a survey, there are inherently findings. And so it's prudent upon us to find, get those findings and then make whatever modifications we need to, that need to be made. Uh, that also still allows us time to make sure that these recent improvements are hard-baked into our daily operations. Once we see those CMS findings and make those improvements, we'll need to ensure we make those changes again to sustain them before new admissions start. In addition, we also need to make sure we have uh, all of the adequate uh, internal systems in place to welcome new residents. For instance, we spent the last 18 months making sure every resident has a customized and updated individualized plan of care. This has been a major finding in past surveys at Laguna over the past several years. And so we need to make sure that those processes are solid before new residents are added to our roles. In addition, the process to begin new admissions will be incremental when it starts, and we want to make sure we are admitting residents at a pace that we can ensure we have the staffing uh, and the infrastructures in place to make sure that they are safe and being cared for in a regulatory appropriate manner. It's also important to know that when we do begin new admissions, uh, any of the former Laguna Honda residents who were transferred due to the CMS requirement they will be our first priority and given preference for new admission to Laguna, provided they still meet the skilled nursing uh, care level of care requirements. 
Having new admissions resume at Laguna, I think will be the final step in this journey because it will help ensure the complete um, long-term uh, future of Laguna, particularly in terms of additional sources of revenue in the form of Medicare uh, dollars. The second issue other than admissions I'd like to address is the issue of the 120 beds. As you will recall, when CMS updated their rules in 2016, it required that those rooms that we call triplets at Laguna, their spaces, that actually, um, they're actually three separate rooms that share a bathroom, but by definition uh, of the new CMS requirements, uh, did not meet their physical requirements, and thus we were um, not able to include those 120 beds in our current operations. Uh, it's important to note that, as I've said here before, uh, those 120 beds have been maintained on our state license from the state of California. Uh, and once we go through the Medicare certification process, we'll then reassess, making sure we meet uh, the, the requirements of the CMS waiver to ask them to allow us to bring those 120 beds back online. We recognize the importance of those beds in San Francisco, given the dearth of skilled nursing facility beds, and are eager to get them back online. We took that into account as we uh, took them out of operation. We did so in a way that uh, we can quickly put them back into service, put the doors back on those areas, put the furniture back into the space. So we welcome and we'll be doing everything we can to restore those beds as quickly as possible. And finally, I'd like to thank you for your recent approval of the emergency declaration for public works to conduct uh, uh, desperately needed capital improvement projects and repairs at Laguna that are necessary for ongoing operations and recertification. The expedited completion of these projects uh, will help to demonstrate again to CMS the citywide commitment to immediate compliance and ensure that Laguna continues to strengthen our position uh, in a successful survey. Throughout the recertification process, we've remained dedicated to our residents, their health, safety, and well-being have and always will be our top priority. We remain confident Laguna is the best place for our residents to receive care. Our goal has always been to demonstrate to both CMS and the California Department of Public Health that we meet the highest standards for our patient care and safety and operations. I'd also like to address the date of our recertification back in the Medicaid program. While on August 16th, the California Department of Public Health and Department of Healthcare Services notified Laguna that we were recertified in the Medicaid program, CMS subsequently later amended the actual recertification date and changed it from August 16th to September 5th. It's important to note that CMS is not questioning the recertification, only making an administrative change to match the official recertification date of the fire life safety plan of correction that we completed uh, as part of the um, uh, 90 day survey number three. Specifically relating to that fire life safety plan of correction, CMS determined uh, that they, uh, over and above California Department of Public Health, needed to do additional review to give themselves the assurance that we were in compliance. 
Upon receipt of our fire life safety plan of correction, uh, CMS did in fact approve it and uh, gave it a date of approval of September 5th. And so therefore, September 5th is the official date of Laguna Honda recertification into the Medicaid program. And so as I close, and uh, uh, we'll open this up to uh, the opportunity for uh, Ms. Simon and I to address your questions or comments. Again, thank you for all your support over the last several months. Uh, and know that um, we, uh, we are going to be at Laguna in a very structured way, even as we transition out of incident command into regular operations. Uh, I will continue to be on site at Laguna for uh, for uh, a while uh, to support Ms. Simon, as will other members of the incident command team, the co-incident commanders, um, uh, Baljeet Sangba, Troy Williams, that Supervisor Melgar mentioned, uh, Maggie Rykowski, Terry Dentoni, the staff who came from other parts of DPH. We're not abandoning, abandoning Laguna. We wanna make sure that we never find ourselves in this situation again. So we are there for Laguna for the long term. So thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Pickens, and thank you for your work, Supervisor Melgar. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Pickens. I know we won't be into the situation again because many of us are eager to make sure that, you know, uh, going forward, we're involved. Um, I would like to give uh, Ms. Simon an opportunity to address the board and just introduce herself and talk a little bit about her credentials. But first, hold on. I have, I have one question for Mr. Pickens, which is, um, you know, up until now, um, most of what I've heard from constituents and some of my colleagues is uh, the anxiety about not um, not being able to get new patients into Laguna Honda. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, uh, about the timeline and the risk of admitting new patients until we have the Medicare certification. Sure, absolutely. So we're, we're operating now at about 200 less residents than we normally would uh, at full operation. Um, at the same time, we've made tremendous uh, rapid pace improvements over the last 18 months. Many um, what we call PDSA um, 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 plans for improvement uh, to improve our operations. Uh, as a result, um, there are several new systems that we've had to train our staff on to get them up and ready. And while we um, have been successful in our Medicaid survey and anticipate being successful in our Medicare survey, uh, we know that because these systems are new, we need to be very careful as we bring in additional patients and add them on top of, of the volume that we have now with the existing staff that we have now. Um, we know that I mentioned those individualized care plans. So we have roughly about 480 patients right now uh, for whom we have individualized care plans. Uh, the word individualized care plan kind of rolls off my tongue like it's no big thing, but it actually is. It, it's the result of physicians, nurses, dietitians, therapists, everyone involved in the residence care meeting with the residents, their families, and the care team to make sure their plans reflect their current needs uh, and uh, their abilities. That is a huge process that, as I mentioned, has been a, 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 um, an issue for Laguna for several years, even prior to recertification. We think we are, we've made progress in, um, in setting up standardized individualized care plans, but we know that process isn't complete. So it would not be in our best interest to introduce a bolus of new residents uh, when we're not yet certain. 
uh, that all of those processes have been put in place. I rem when I came here previously, I mentioned that we had an initiative called um, Continuous Care at the Bedside, CCBM, where we brought in experienced nursing home uh, directors of nursing and deployed them to each of our 13 uh, uh, neighborhoods or nursing units. Uh, that program just started in June, so we're only about three months into it, but it's paid off hugely in terms of helping us proactively identify issues, which I think was one of the causes of the decertification. Uh, Laguna did not have systems in place to quickly identify problems that he then he turned into regulatory uh, deficiencies. But now with programs like the CCCBM, like what's called an in, a daily interdisciplinary team meeting that Sandra Simon brought to us the last two months since she's been on board. We have those systems in place, but they're all new. Ms. Simon's only been here since June 26. So we need a few more months, get through the Medicare certification, get that plan of correction, submit those corrections, and then make sure that these new initiatives are hard-baked, and then we'll be ready to uh, accept new residents. Can we give, uh, before we go to my colleagues' questions, if it's okay, just a chance for Ms. Simon to introduce herself. Sure. Thank you. Ms. Sandra Simon, good to see you again. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for allowing me to introduce myself. Um, I just wanna just say how thrilled I am to join this leadership team at Laguna Honda and just come in at the, end of this 18 months of real culture change and real transformative work and come in and help lead the team for sustainability so that we never go back to where we found ourselves. And a little bit about me, I've spent my whole career in, in skilled nursing. I was, um, when I was in college, I was working like many of us in fast food and my roommate said, hey, we're hiring nursing assistants. And um, we've always, the industry, as you know, has always been short nursing, even back then. And so I started as a nursing assistant and um, decided to change uh, my degree to a ba uh, bachelor's in gerontology. And then um, it was a new program back then and uh, pursued MBA in healthcare and really have worked my way through various levels of a skilled nursing organization act activities, social services, um, and when I was a baby, I want to say a baby administrator, a real young administrator, I used to say I admired Laguna Honda from afar, and I always used to say I want to work there. Um, I want to work there someday. So I'm just thrilled to be able to come and um, and join this team and help the city and help this icon be the new Laguna Honda Hospital. So thank you for giving me a few minutes. I don't know if you have any questions. We'll see. All right. Stick around, Miss Simon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sit in the front row. We'll, we'll get you. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Supervisor Mandelman. Uh, thank you, President Peskin, and thank you, Supervisor Melgar, for uh, this hearing and for um, uh, keeping all of us up to date on what is transpiring at Laguna Honda, which I think is of interest to all of us um, and is a citywide issue. And um, Welcome, Ms. Simon. Thank you for stepping up to this challenge. Um, and I, I want to follow up just briefly on um, on the beds, the numbers, the types, um, and, I, and and thank you uh, for 
letting us know of the desire at least or intention to bring those 120 beds online if we can at some point. Um, it has been, and I have heard from folks in other parts of our public health system that the inability to get people into beds at Laguna Honda has been um, terribly impactful in very negative ways. Um, this has been horrible for families and, and folks who've had to leave Laguna Honda, but um, I think it has also been terrible for a system that doesn't have anywhere to discharge people from higher levels of care. Um, and uh, so this, from my perspective, the sooner we can get those 120 beds available for skilled nursing, I mean, this is, your, this is everybody's perspective, um, but, right, but the reality is that we're, until that happens, looking at a system that has 120 fewer beds um, uh, for people who need skilled nursing care. At points along this journey, as you've updated us, you have talked to us about the thinking that's been going on at Laguna Honda about the different populations of folks who find themselves there and the particular needs of people with, uh, who in addition to their other skilled nursing needs have um, uh, severe mental illness, um, substance use issues. There has been some talk or thought along the way that a challenge at Laguna Honda had been um, the perhaps inappropriate mixing of populations with different needs and that maybe it made sense to think about physically uh, separating and having different facilities or parts of facilities used for different populations. And there was also apparently, I think, a working group or some thinking going on about the particular uh, needs of people with uh, serious mental illness who might be finding their way, uh, who had been finding their way to Laguna Honda but might uh, not in the future or would might need a different version of Laguna Honda. And so I'm curious where that thinking is, if it has landed anywhere, if it is ongoing, if we're going to see a proposal, where that is. Thank you for that question, Supervisor Mandelman. So you'll recall at the uh, beginning of this uh, journey, there was a root cause analysis conducted by the CMS uh, quality improvement expert. Uh, in that analysis, it listed 13 uh, areas of possible cause for uh, the decertification. One of those was the delivery of behavioral health services. Uh, that root, uh, the action plan that was created uh, in response to that root cause analysis uh, did, just as you described, called for the creation of a group to reevaluate uh, behavioral services operations at Laguna. Uh, that group has been meeting over the last year uh, and um, has come uh, together and uh, is will be presenting to the Health Commission uh, at its meeting in October. Uh, in general, uh, they uh, brought in uh, minds from um, the community, from UCSF, from behavioral services, to talk about, uh, number one, what are the requirements within a skilled nursing facility uh, for the provision of such services, both mental health and substance abuse? Because CMS actually uh, clarified in their, uh, what they called phase three regulations that went into effect October of last year, that skilled nursing facilities must provide adequate mental health and behavioral health services for residents who have those needs. So in addition to meeting that regulatory requirement, the group met and also considered then, but how do you do that in an environment where you're co-mingling residents who don't have those needs? So the group has, um, again, um, met 
and has a proposal that they'll be bringing before the Health Commission at its October meeting, and I'm sure we'll be happy to share that uh, with the members of the board uh, as well. I would be interested in that, and depending on what's in there, it might be something that our um, Homelessness and Behavioral Health uh, Committee might be interested in looking at, but I at least would be interested. Supervisor Ronan. Thank you. I, those were most of my questions, but I just wanted to congratulate you. It feels like we can finally breathe. <laughs> uh, and to thank you for all the work. Uh, Ms. Simon, I'm so excited to meet you and to um, get to work with you. Uh, and I want to thank Supervisor Melgar for all her leadership during this grueling, excruciating process. Um, and just can't wait till uh, we can put this behind us and uh, like Supervisor Mandelman said, begin admitting uh, new patients who desperately need this service. So thank you. Thank you. Supervisor Melgar, any concluding comments? Mr. Pickens? Just wanted to say thank you uh, again to Mr. Pickens uh, uh, and to Dr. Fol Colfax and uh, Ms. Simon for being up to this monumental task, but also to all of my colleagues for your patience um, and uh, help uh, along several times, you know, along the way of this journey. So thank you so much. Uh, and I, after we get a public comment, I would like to make a motion to file this hearing. Thank you, Supervisor Melgar. I will now open it up to public comment. All speakers will be allowed up to two minutes to provide your comments. Madam Clerk, will you please call the first speaker? For those of you who are in the chamber, please feel free to line up on your right-hand side of the chamber. All right. And we have a special accommodation, I believe, at two. Yes, uh, yes, we do, Mr. President. We are ready, uh, pursuant to Title II of the Americans with Disability Act, through a prior arrangement, we have an individual who would like to make his public comment. Staff, please uh, send Mr. Manette Shaw through. Thank uh, you, um, Ms. Khalil. This is Patrick. Community members are very concerned the Board of Suits need to act now to ensure Laguna Honda never faces decertification again. You must create an effective system of real oversight over Laguna Honda because the Health Commission and the Long-Term Care Coordinating Council have failed miserably to provide adequate oversight. Clearly, those failures led directly to Laguna Honda being decertified 18 months ago in April 2022 because of the mismanagement by Laguna Honda staff. Please consider introducing a charter team ballot measure to change appointments to the Health Commission to create greater and more effective oversight over Laguna Honda. My written testimony documents that because the Health Commission failed to monitor Laguna Honda's policy and procedures for years, the Commission <coughs> Um, had to race through a review of at least 284 separate Laguna Honda policies um, in the past eight months prior to approving revisions. Those 284 policies totaled 1,900 pages of highly technical medical and nursing policies. That was just catch-up work. 
consultants paid $40 million over the last 18 months, identified 676 milestone corrective actions, and produced an additional 507 pages of root cause analysis and monthly monitoring reports. It's not known if the Health Commission read and discussed any of those 507 pages of recommendation. Those reports suggest the Health Commission Thank you. as... Thank you, Patrick, for your comments. I do apologize for cutting anyone off when we do get to the remote part of this public comment, but we are setting the timer for two minutes. All right, welcome. Is this uh, general or just the hospital? This is just for Laguna Honda. Okay, in regards to the hospital, I, they have been killing machines. These hospitals have been turned into killing machines. I was listening to Dr. Brian Artis and uh, Dr. Jane Ruby, and his uh, poor father-in-law, um, he went into the hospital. He had supposedly COVID, right? He walks in under his own steam. And uh, they say, oh, you got COVID. And they put him on some medicine. And Dr. Brian Artis is a doctor, too. So on the day four, he walks in there and he says, let me see the chart. You know, and he said, take him off this and put him on that. And in four hours, the man urinated 10 pounds. He became cognizant. He could talk because Dr. Brian Artis put him on the right Sir, stuff. Sir, I'm pausing your well, time. This is about Laguna Honda's hospital strategy for recertification yeah. and the submission of a closure and patient transfer and relocation plan. But it's still a hospital, I'm gonna, right? I mean, it's, it's I'm Laguna Honda it. Hospital, very specifically. Yeah, I think all I'm of them are time. using remdesivir, though, ma'am. Every hospital, including Laguna, you know, are using this remdesivir, which shuts down their kidneys and they die just like Dr. Brian Artis's father in law died. It, it wasn't from remdesivir, but since Fauci authorized in May 20, I mean May 1st, 2020, to use remdesivir, that's the stuff, and that's why we had the highest death rate. It wasn't from COVID, it was from the remdesivir. And Dr. Brian Artis apparently is the only doctor that read these two uh, studies that Fauci said shows that remdesivir that's made by Gilead and only Gilead that I've personally tried to buy at several different hospitals, not Laguna, but you know, they won't sell it to me. Um, it's killing the people. So we have to discuss this. We have to talk about this. We, America, the United States that had the great... That is not the subject of this hearing. I'll just redirect you. Your time is ticking. Uh, well, if you're not going to let me talk, I mean, it is a hospital. It's, if, it's Laguna not just is about using remdesivir. So, I mean. All right, let's hear from our next speaker, please. Um, hi, my name is um, Teresa Palmer. I'm a geriatrician and family doctor, and I worked at Laguna Honda for 15 years, and I've been pretty vocal about Laguna Honda. Um, I, you know, there is a reason there was a book written about it called God's Hotel. And it, although I'm very relieved at the progress that has been made and having an actual certified nursing home administrator at Laguna Honda for the first time since 2005. Why did this happen? Why is Laguna Honda continuing to struggle facility-wide with functions that are basic to the care of nursing home patients? Writing an individualized care plan for nursing home patients is one of the fundamental uh, things that you must do, and modifying it when things change. Um, 
why um, there's a very good reason that the federal government decertified it. It was badly managed. And um, uh, we've, we've got to prevent this from happening again. And I really think you, the Board of Supervisors should have a meeting of the whole about this every three months until it's fully back in operation and readmitting. I think patient, nursing home residents that have had to fa find facilities out of county because Laguna Honda has been closed should have priority to come back. And um, I think um, please oversee getting, keeping those 120 beds. We're not out of the woods yet, but we also please work on the changes, if necessary, to the charter to make sure there's oversight, properly skilled oversight, to make sure we never go through this horrible and expensive episode again. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Dr. Palmer. Anyone else in the chamber? All right. I, it's just uh, uh, the same concept. You, you must declare your conflict of interest. So that's it. After that, you don't accept, uh, I don't know, in the case of this hospital, I'm not too familiar with it, but it's a general concept. Declare your conflict of interest. And, uh, well, I mean, you have to deal with any sort of blackmail and thing. It's, it's not working. Thank you, Mr. Field. All right, seeing no one in the chamber getting up to address this matter before the board, Mr. President, we'll head to remote public comment on your, on your request. Please do. Okay. All right, so we are going to go to the remote callers. Uh, let's have the first caller come through, please. Welcome, caller. Oh, Madam Clerk, there are no more callers in the queue. We don't have any. Okay, right, thank you. public comment is closed. Uh, are there any members of the board who have final comments? Supervisor Melgar. I'd just like to make a motion that we file this hearing. Motion made by Supervisor Melgar, second by Supervisor Mandelman. Colleagues, we will take that without objection. The public hearing has been held and is now filed. Madam Clerk, let's go back to roll call for introductions. Yes, Supervisor Safai has to be re-referred after Supervisor Dorsey. I just thank you, Madam Clerk. Just wanted to say a few words to add on to Filipino Heritage Month. Thank you, Supervisor Dorsey, for being the cultural home of the Filipino community. Um, but I am very proud to represent the largest number of Filipinos uh, in San Francisco um, and to celebrate their culture. Uh, it was wonderful to see them in a number of the cultural events that we've experienced over the last few months from parades to uh, food festivals to cultural recognitions. And so I, I, I thank Supervisor Dorsey and, and look forward to continuing to partnership with him to uplift and celebrate the wonderful contributions that Filipinos have contributed to San Francisco and will continue to. Um, we went to a wonderful uh, celebration the other night. I'll just end with uh, West Bay Filipino Community Services has been serving uh, the Soma community for almost 100 years, um, or it was about 100 years, right? Uh, it's, it's gone back for, for some time. Um, but there was a moment um, in their history where they almost uh, were shut down as an organization. And that was, uh, happened to be when I was a deputy director for community development. So it's important to stabilize uh, organizations like that 
and continue to uplift and celebrate uh, what they have done for the community and the culture. So thank you, Supervisor Dorsey, um, for your partnership. And thank you to all the Filipinos out there in San Francisco for what you do to make San Francisco special. And the rest I submit. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. And Supervisor Dorsey has to be re-referred after Supervisor Safai. Supervisor Dorsey. Submit. Okay. Thank you. Supervisor Ringardio. Thank you, Madam Clerk. I'm introducing a ballot measure urging San Francisco's public schools to let kids take algebra in the eighth grade. Now we make everyone wait until the ninth grade because some kids aren't ready for algebra sooner. Let's better prepare all students instead of holding back kids who love math. When did you learn algebra? At my public school in Michigan, I took algebra in the eighth grade. This is still the standard today. Most school districts in the Bay Area teach basic algebra in the eighth grade. Some even let seventh graders take it when they show eagerness and ability in math. Yet in San Francisco, algebra one is not offered until ninth grade. We stopped offering eighth grade algebra because not every student was prepared for it. So that's not a solution. We should do better to prepare all students for algebra and not punish kids who can handle it earlier. By delaying algebra, math-loving kids in San Francisco are punished because they won't be able to take calculus coursework by high school graduation. And this hurts college options. There are workarounds. Students can cram a year of geometry in summer school, but a long wait list means not everyone gets a seat. Parents can pay for math courses that help students reach calculus by senior year, but that only works for families who can afford it. Why does eighth grade algebra matter? Every resident of San Francisco should care about this because well-run public schools are essential for a city to function and thrive. We have a tale of two school systems in San Francisco. Private schools are growing and public school enrollment is declining. This reduces school district revenues, which are based on the number of enrolled students. And this makes it more difficult to provide what students and teachers need. A quarter of our kids attend private school compared to only 9% in California. A policy against eighth grade algebra is a big factor when families decide to leave public schools when their child reaches middle school. Families also leave San Francisco entirely. They leave for many reasons, cost of housing, quality of life, and schools. We have the lowest percentage of children among major US cities. It's often said San Francisco has more dogs than kids, and that's a problem. San Francisco's future depends on keeping families here. This starts with treating parents like partners and offering the courses and programs that will make parents want to choose public schools, especially the parents stretching themselves to pay for private tuition. How do we get to this point? San Francisco stopped letting eighth graders take algebra in 2014. It was a well-intended policy. There were concerns about a racial gap in algebra completion rates. The goal was to stop tracking kids based on ability and keep all students together until everyone was, was prepared to take advanced math classes. But school superintendent Matt Wayne told the San Francisco Chronicle that delaying algebra until ninth grade did not improve outcomes. And a study by Stanford University showed the policy had little to no impact on improving pass rates, proficiency, or enrollment in higher math classes. Another unintended consequence of the math policy affects college applications. 
San Francisco offers a compression class of Algebra II and pre-calculus that combines two years of math into one. It's supposed to make up for the late start of Algebra I, but this mashup course does not meet the admission standards to the University of California system because it doesn't have enough pre-calculus content to be considered advanced math. Imagine the disappointment of a student who wants to attend a UC school. Rex Ridgway is an advocate for eighth grade algebra because his granddaughter Jocelyn loves math. He wanted to make sure Jocelyn could get into the college of her choice, so he paid nearly $1,000 for Jocelyn to take algebra the summer before ninth grade. He paid another $1,000 for a pre-calculus class the summer before 11th grade. Rex says knowing calculus in high school is essential because he pointed to UC San Diego, which has 78 majors that begin with calculus. Now Rex's granddaughter is on track with all A's in math at Lincoln High School, but it shouldn't have to be this way. That's why Rex has written op-eds, spoken during public comment at City Hall, and organized parents to call on the school district to change the algebra policy. Now the Board of Supervisors, we do not have control over the school district. Our schools are governed by an independently elected school board. But every resident of San Francisco is our constituent, including parents and students. Their voices deserve to be heard. That's why I'm introducing, through the Board of Supervisors, a declaration of policy for the March 2024 ballot. It urges the school district to offer Algebra I to students by the eighth grade and to develop a math curriculum that prioritizes excellence for students at all grade levels. I want to thank the co-sponsors of the measure, Supervisors Safai, Melger, Stephanie, and Dorsey. Thanks to the advocacy of many parents like Rex Ridgway, the school district has initiated a process and a committee to look at bringing algebra back to the eighth grade. This is great. But many parents know that committees can veer in different directions. There is no guarantee what this committee will determine. That's why the ballot measure is important. It gives parents and voters the chance to tell the school district that there is a mandate for eighth grade algebra. Now, some will worry that a vital school bond measure in March 2024 could be jeopardized by an eighth grade algebra measure on the same ballot. I believe the two measures complement each other. Let's vote yes on both. Let's fund our schools and tell the school district we need eighth grade algebra. Both are needed for our public schools to succeed. If a kid likes math, let's do everything we can to encourage it. And the rest I submit. Thank you, Supervisor Engardio. And Supervisor Milgar asked to be re-referred after you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, so I uh, am co-sponsoring Supervisor Engardio's um, effort uh, on algebra, and I wanted to explain why. Um, so I have uh, two main reasons. One is data-driven and, uh, you know, results-oriented, as uh, I usually do. Um, as uh, someone who has spent many years doing um, after school and in-school supports of, around academic recovery, math recovery, and reading recovery uh, for low-income kids, um, this was a policy that was well-intended that has resulted in no outcomes for what it was intended. Um, and that is the main reason why uh, I support 
um, revisiting it and doing something else. I think that when we intend something and it doesn't result it, we should have the courage to say, hey, this didn't work out, let's try something else. And I think that this is where we are. And these, uh, this data is at the state level. It's not just in San Francisco. It has not worked as intended. Um, but it's also an equity issue for me. And I want to explain why as, as a parent, because I am the daughter. I mean, I'm the mother of three daughters, um, two who are math heads. And, you know, I, I think that will come to, as no surprise to you all that um, math is really important for STEM careers, uh, which is something that in San Francisco has been a nascent industry, one that has become really important in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Uh, people of color and girls are underrepresented in STEM careers. Um, and that has had an impact in earning differential uh, in upward mobility, which is something that San Francisco and the Bay Area has always prided itself on. But for girls in particular, um, fifth grade is when girls start saying, oh, I'm not good in math. Oh, you know, this is not something for me. And there are all these like subtle and direct messages that come from folks um, around them in educational institution and their peers that reinforce that stereotype about girls and math. And I think that we should be doing the opposite of, you know, uh, not allowing folks. Uh, I, like I said, have two of my three girls who are math heads. My middle daughter was actually the president of her robotics team in fifth grade. Um, and her team was so good that they made it to the state finals. Um, and we walked into Mission High School in Fremont for the state finals and saw thousands of kids, almost all boys. And my black Latina girl was the only girl who looked like her in the entire room. And she looked at me and she said, I'm going to fix this, mom, someday. <laughs> I'm going to be the CEO of a company, you know, uh, that deals with STEM. So she went on to uh, major in statistics in college. Uh, she is a math head. But, you know, we did have the means to support her to get that extra uh, during her school career. Uh, my youngest daughter this year is now in ninth grade. And we did have to go through this. The one test, the only test that was given in the San Francisco Unified School District to enter geometry uh, in ninth grade was given on a Saturday on the day her uh, bat mitzvah was scheduled. So she would not have been able to take it. I had to fill out all kinds of forms asking for a religious exemption. Um, and at the end, the school district said, hey, no, we're not going to give this test uh, this year. I would like parents going forward to have a certainty of how this is going to work. I would like the school district, if you know we're not ready to come out with a sequencing starting in third grade, at least be clear of what we will do. And I would like a system where kids who show promise um, are given every opportunity. And kids who have been disadvantaged are given even more opportunity to be able to succeed so that we can equalize the playing field for girls and for uh, you know people who have been underrepresented in math and in STEM fields because that is our future. Um, and I am uh, grateful to Supervisor Engardio for introducing this and I hope that there is an outcome that is uh, positive with our school district understanding that this is an urging, not anything that we can actually control. Thank you. Thank you. And last but not least, Supervisor Mandelman. 
Thank you, Madam Clerk. I have uh, an ordinance and a hearing request. Um, the ordinance um, I am introducing is legislation to extend the deadline for small businesses to comply with, the, with San Francisco's mandatory disability access improvements ordinance. Uh, that ordinance established what is known as the Accessible Building Entrance or ABE program and I know a lot of folks on this board are already familiar with that. Um, as you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act or ADA passed in 1990 and prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities in all aspects of public life. Title III of the ADA focuses on businesses mandating that these spaces be accessible to people with disabilities. The Board of Supervisors passed the Mandatory Disability Access Improvements Ordinance a mouthful, in 2016 to implement these requirements locally and provide a measure of protection to businesses at risk of being sued for failure to comply with the ADA. The city's ordinance lists a multi-step process to get in compliance with the AB program. First, property owners have to submit, have, must have their buildings inspected by a licensed architect, engineer, or certified access specialist who fills out a checklist to determine whether the building's entrance meets the ordinance's accessibility requirements and any changes that need to be made. After the inspection, the property owner I must get the planning department to review any potential changes to the building, and in most cases, the owner needs to apply for a building permit to make the necessary modifications. Once the building entrance is upgraded to meet all requirements from the checklist, the property owner is officially in compliance with the AB program. And if property owners don't meet the requirements of the program, they're subject to building code enforcement penalties. The ABE program also provides for safe harbor exemptions where the physical changes to the building to meet ABE requirements would be technically infeasible and and where the necessary changes would be an unreasonable financial hardship for the business. Documentation of compliance with the ABE program or a city-approved exemption provides small businesses a legal defense against frivolous ADA lawsuits. Okay, seeing some nodding, folks know this. The COVID-19 pandemic impacted the ability of small businesses throughout the city to meet the requirements of the AB program. In recognition of those hardships, the Board of Supervisors amended the Mandatory Disability Access Improvements Ordinance in 2021 to extend by two years the deadline for businesses to submit the checklists for their required building inspections and secure the permits to modify their buildings and meet the requirements of the program. With the extended deadline for businesses to obtain the building permits necessary to comply with the ABE program now at hand, We've heard from business owners in District 8 and across the city who are facing significant challenges modifying their buildings to address the issues identified by their inspections or who've had difficulty requesting an exemption from the program for technical infeasibility or financial hardship. One restaurant owner in Bernal Heights spent thousands of dollars on building inspections apparently to address a single step in front of the business entrance. Then... <laughs> After spending all that money, the certified access specialist he'd hired informed him that it would be impossible to bring the building into compliance with the ABE program as removing the step would threaten the structural integrity of the building. This, I'm not sure. <laughs> this small business owner tried to contact both the Department of Building Inspection and the Access Appeals Commission to receive an exemption, but never heard back from either. Um, and my office understands that the Access Appeals Commission has not officially met in two years. A store owner in my district, in Glen Park, anxious about the near approaching compliance deadlines, reached out to a consultant she found online. Um, the consultant convinced the owner that to meet 
ABE program requirements, she would have to pay the consultant $15,000 to install an automatic door owner. And the, the store owner paid that $15,000, even though we understand a typical installation costs several hundred dollars, and the door didn't work. So that's a couple of examples we've heard. Um, and we reached out to, the, uh, to uh, the great Office of Small Business Director, Katie Tang, to see if there was a larger problem here. Uh, we understand that these two folks are not alone. There is a bigger problem here. Some folks are managing to comply, but a lot of folks are running into problems like the ones um, I've highlighted. Ideally, the city would have a better process to bring businesses into compliance with accessibility requirements with fewer opportunities for abuse, and I know that Director Tang is hopeful the city may be able to achieve that improved process and is committed to working on it and is having those conversations within her office. But in the meantime, again, although I know we've done this before, I think we need to provide some additional breathing room to the stressed out business owners who have not already come into compliance. I do want to thank Director Tang for her um, thoughtfulness and desire to work on this and willingness to corral uh, various city departments to try to work or figure something out. I want to thank Zara Haji in my office for explaining these very complicated things to me um, and, uh, and uh, for her work on the ordinance. And I want to thank Supervisor Angardia, who I understand has signed on as a co-sponsor. All right. My hearing request, um, I actually thought I was going to do next week, but uh, developments today, uh, I think, suggest that today might be the right day. I do not share, uh, plainly, I mean, this is another one of these issues where uh, folks on the Board of Supervisors disagree, the mayor's announcement um, of her GA, of her policy. I think it's worth noting that um, that legislation that the mayor announced is still being drafted, and um, so we actually don't have it in hand to evaluate the, uh, the particular challenges. But on its face, I think it is reasonable to, uh, to ask folks in exchange for receiving a cash benefit from the city to engage in treatment. The proposal is not to take away people's shelter or their housing. It is merely to say that the cash will not flow unless folks are willing to engage in treatment. We can have the conversation about whether that is horrible or not. I think that in a city that has hundreds of overdose deaths every year, um, that it is worth trying. And I do think that the notion that San Francisco needs to shift from being a place that is merely trying to keep folks with addictions alive longer until they do eventually die, um, rather than a city, I think we should be shifting to be a city that supports sobriety and helps folks um, uh, get start a new life. Um, my, my concern about this proposal, though, is a more practical one, which is, is the city actually going to be able to pull this off? And that is the root of my hearing request. Um, in February, uh, uh, the um, Department of Public Health came up with its annual treatment on demand report, reporting on treatment on demand the prior year. I typically do a hearing on, uh, on, on the treatment on demand reports. I'm late in asking for that, but this does seem like a good moment to do it. One of the things we have heard 
uh, from prior treatment on demand reports uh, and hearings is the Department of Public Health insists that we are basically meeting our treatment on demand obligations and then we typically have a fight or at least an argument, it's not a fight, that's too strong, but uh, an argument or uh, where, where folks um, who are actually uh, on, on the ground trying to provide, trying to get folks into treatment, um, folks who are engaged with the criminal justice system, folks who are trying to access treatment for folks with dual diagnoses, folks who are trying to access treatment for people um, who are monolingual in a language other than English, um, all say that we are not actually meeting our treatment on demand ob obligation. Judges who oversee court. Okay, I'm getting, we're, we're, the, the peanut gallery is adding in here. Anyway, I have real concerns that we are not currently meeting our treatment on demand obligations, but I think it's worth talking about and thinking about this, particularly if, we're, if we are going to step up in the way that the mayor is proposing, which I support. Um, I want to thank Supervisor Stephanie for the leadership that she has provided on this. Back uh, before the break, you may recall, she took the lead on a letter of inquiry um, that asked about folks who, uh, who that told a harrowing story of uh, first responders trying to access not even a treatment program, just a detox facility for um, someone trying to access, uh, access detox, and we're not able to do that. And I don't know that that is a completely isolated story. I think it's not. Um, and so uh, thank you, uh, Supervisor Stephanie, for co-sponsoring this. I don't know if you have anything you want to add to those remarks, but um, that's Supervisor what Stephanie. I got in the rest and, of the and, I, and I, I will say this is an unagendized item, and we are getting to the point where Deputy City Attorney Givner is starting to question whether or not we are having substantive discussions, which we I don't think we've crossed that line, but Supervisor Stephanie, you are so advised. That was a hearing request. I will try to heed that advice. I think I shall succeed. Uh, thank you, President Peskin. I just wanted to add, um, first of all, thank you, Supervisor Mandelman, for introducing the hearing that we have been talking about for quite some time. And um, to state why I am joining on to that hearing, this, the discussion um, that has been had, and one of the reasons why I care so deeply about those who suffer from substance abuse is because I grew up in a home with a lot of it. and. My lived experience informs how I make conclusions, the policies I try to pass, the people I try to hold accountable, and I don't think that's something that should be made fun of, discounted, um, or in any way dismissed. And when I think about what propels me to try to hold the Department of Health accountable in terms of the letter of inquiry I did, in this hearing, I know with a brother who struggled with drug addictions to every single kind of drug out there since he was 18, he's now 51, who I can't even begin to tell you the struggle my family and my parents went through in terms of trying to get my brother the help he needed addicted to everything. And then, of course, heroin was the worst towards the end. And he was living at home with my dad, trying to help him. He had five kids, but only two living with him. And giving my brother money and paying his rent was not working because the rent didn't get paid, and my brother spent it on drugs. And my dad eventually had to stop giving my brother money and raised my two nephews. My brother is finally sober, 
trying. He gave up drugs. He's finally trying to give up alcohol at 51, still struggling with his health. And it is extremely difficult to watch because I love him beyond comprehension. I love my mom and I love everyone and my dad who no longer is even cognizant of what's happening, but what I've seen my family go through, not just my brother, I'm the oldest of six, and this is a the disease of addiction is a family disease. I have a sister who I had to help raise her son for a little bit. And so when I come to a conclusion that giving people money to do the drugs that might kill them might be a problem, I am not a bad person. I am not someone who is thinking about harming others. This is a concept and a way to try to help people. And I will not participate in anything that will make people's lives worse. And one of the reasons, as Supervisor Mandelman stated, we have to believe that we can do better to deliver services or it won't work. There's no point to it unless we get the Department of Public Health to do better. They are not delivering on treatment on demand. This whole no wrong doors policy is somewhat of a joke. And so I wholeheartedly join in this hearing request after I sent that letter to the Department of Public Health inquiring about the status of our withdrawal management treatment system. In response, the San Francisco Department of Public Health provided information on the process an individual must undergo to seek medical detox and gave some statistics on the effectiveness of services delivered by our contracted nonprofits. Unfortunately, the response did not provide sufficient answers to the questions that I and Supervisor Mandelman raised in the letter. Furthermore, the data that was provided left me with additional questions. These questions include how effectively our withdrawal management care starts a sustained path to recovery, and how the treatment on demand annual report fails to match with anecdotal evidence I hear from those who are in recovery because I know tons, hundreds of people in recovery in this beautiful city. I, those who are working in recovery centers, I'm blessed to know them and also those who are trying to get people into recovery, our first responders who are constantly telling me the struggles of getting people the help they need. For example, the letter, the response states that in fiscal year 2022-23, there were 1,683 withdrawal management discharges from HR um, 360, HealthRight 360, the Salvation Army and the Joe Healy program. Of these discharges, 671 transitioned to residential treatment and 132 transitioned directly to outpatient treatment programs. That means that 52% of patients discharged from withdrawal management do not continue with SFDPH programs, despite needing to spend one to two weeks on average in a supervised care bed. Are we surveying individuals discharged from withdrawal management treatment about their plan to continue recovery? Are we keeping data on the amount of individuals with repeated detox care? And if so, how many times on average are we seeing repeated patients receive these services? These are critical questions that we need hard data on to better understand where the gaps in our system are and what, what is leading to individuals falling off the path to recovery in our continuum of care here in San Francisco. 
Additionally, DPH's response posits that the median wait time is less than one day for a patient who completed an initial assessment to be admitted into a withdrawal management bed. Yet later in the response, the response states that HealthRight 360 admitted 45 to 55% of individuals seeking withdrawal management. There's a discrepancy there, obviously. Where do our service providers lose the other 45 to 55% of individuals who seek withdrawal management? Are they simply to return to their life plagued to addiction? And unfortunately, that's what is happening. It's a revolving door. I know how hard it is for people to want to get help from their addiction. Denial is a huge part of this disease, and we have to be ready and willing to do everything we can. We have to have the resources, we have to have paths to get them into beds, and we have to make sure that we have detox and everything possible before we embark on anything that takes away um, services from people. But by God, the fact that we are giving people funds that are helping them continue in their addiction without helping them with their addiction. We can do better, and I know we can do better. And I do admire the passion because I know the passion comes from a good place, and I know that we have to somehow come together on this because we all care in our own way about this issue. But I hope to God we can come together because, like I said, what I've been through in my family and what I see people, the, other, the mothers that I talk to, what I see our departments going through, what everyone's going through in terms of trying to help those with substance abuse addiction, it's a real problem and one that's hard for a lot of people that have grown up in this misery. And I just tell you right now, I'm absolutely committed to doing everything I can to, to continue to get at this issue, and it's why, and I will conclude with this, it is why I was the first supervisor to provide a platform to those in recovery, the Recovery Summit Working Group, when they came here, those who are formerly incarcerated, those who go to meetings every day, those who admit that they have a problem with alcohol or drugs, those who are living a life free of drugs and alcohol, they came here and they told us what works for them. And we have not listened to them in a way that's been effective. And I'm going to make sure, again, through our hearings with Supervisor Mandelman, that we continue to push on Department of Public Health to do better and to provide more resources for those who are suffering from substance abuse addiction and to make sure we're not taking away from them and making their lives even more miserable. But by God, we better make sure we're doing everything we can to help those who suffer from this disease. The rest I submit. Thank you, Supervisor Stephanie. Mr. President, seeing no names on the roster, that concludes the introduction of new business. Let's go to general public comment. Okay. All right, those of you who are here in the chamber, please line up on your right-hand side of the chamber. Uh, you may speak to items 27 and 28. These are the items under the adoption without committee reference calendar and other general matters that are not on today's agenda but are within the, the board's subject matter jurisdiction. All other agenda content will have been reported out to the board by an appropriate committee where the public comment requirement has occurred. We still have our seasoned interpreters. They know to jump in once we have a speaker in language. And uh, let's hear from our first speaker. Welcome. I'll set the timer for two minutes. I'd like two hours, but if you'll give me two, that's better than nothing. Okay, Paul, Saul of Tarsus was a great uh, enemy of the church, and he, he killed Christians. 
And then he got saved. And uh, he wrote uh, many of the books in the New Testament. And uh, he said, if any man preach any other gospel to you than that which I've preached, even if he was an angel from heaven, let him be cursed. Let him be cursed. And that gospel is very, very simple. It's that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised again the third day, according to the scriptures. That is, David said he would be raised. Okay? Uh, Isaiah said he would be killed. David said uh, uh, he would be pierced. His hands and feet would be pierced. The, there's many scriptures in the Old Testament that said he would die. And why would he die? He would die for our sins. Okay? And if you don't come to him, you're doomed, you're toast. You really are when you die, really. I mean, here's a few things he said. If any man wants to be my disciple and does not hate his mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters and his own life also, he can't be my disciple. If he doesn't take up his cross and follow me, he can't be my disciple. In another place, on a different occasion with a different group of people, he stated it a little bit differently, and he said... uh, I've come to set the world on fire. I've come to bring a sword. And uh, if you don't love me more than your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your wife, your children, or your own life, you're, you're not worthy of me, okay? He, he's the only way to be saved. The hour is late. He's coming back soon. One thing he did not say, but of that year knoweth no man. He didn't say that, okay? We're in a Sabbath year. We're in a Sabbath year now. It certainly implies that in in Matthew 11. Thank you for your comment. Let's hear from our next speaker, please. Good afternoon. My name is John Trezvini. I'm a District 11 native, and I am here to thank uh, Supervisors and Guardio, uh, Safai, Stephanie, Melgar, and Dorsey for using your authority under the Charter to listen to the people and by placing a ballot measure uh, in in, in March regarding algebra. You're listening to voters who care about opportunity for all students at all schools. Francisco, Aptus, Denman, Horace Mann, James Lick, Presidio, Everett, all the junior highs in San San Francisco. I had a lot to say, but Supervisor Melgar said it so well, so powerfully, uh, caring for all kids. Our kids in San Francisco should not be bystanders as they see that there shouldn't be bystanders to STEM careers. They should not be looking out at the Salesforce Tower and not envisioning in their future a job there in, in, in technology, in science and math. And that is what the taking away of eighth grade algebra has done for too many of our kids. So this is an opportunity to let the voters uh, speak and you through your powers today have listened uh, to those voices, those parents, those families. We appreciate your efforts, and thank you for your efforts uh, overall for San Francisco. Thank, thank you. you. Well, let them do math next thing you want them clean the room or something. Anyway, you got the, the, they wanted to take the America from the natives. What they did is they called them savages. They gave them smallpox blankets. They want to take the coyote heel from coyotes. What they do is they call them wild animals, and they, they want to put them in some kind of a whatever. They want to take the street from the homeless people. They want to call them A.H. Somebody is most organized. I'll tell you now because I want, if I disappear, I want people to still look into this, what happened. This is a huge thing that happened. Over the last two years, people have, have 
the whole peninsula calls me AH about 50 times or 100 times a day. I hear it for the last two years. Now, when I was a child, I was tortured. I have the evidence all over me. Laceration, plan, laceration, big chunks of like over 1,000 lacerations. Every day was beaten severely, tortured as a child, okay? And this all flashes back when people put me down, et cetera, et cetera. Manablom has been going around telling people that I've had housing a dozen times and it always turned out. It opened up my records. I give you permission to open it up. Only one time the city gave me housing. One time, other than one time I came out of the hospital for a week they gave me housing. So two times altogether. And I stayed there for five years, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, this is horrible. It, it causes me to not function. I can't get housing. I can't even get up off the ground. It looks like I'm on drugs. I'm down on the ground crying and, and, and talking out loud like this, screaming like this. I can't stop doing it. When, when these flashbacks come back from my being tortured as a child when people keep putting me down, okay? I was in housing, you guys kicked me out falsely. It was there five years. Kicked me out falsely and started this whole anti-homeless thing and started putting me down and everyone down. I can't function, I can't get housing. And look into this thing, the whole state calling me this and there's some kind of crime going on I've done and they tell everyone about it, but there's not enough crime to put handcuffs on me, enough crime to tell the whole state of California, right? And everyone knows it and knows I'm guilty and they're trying to hurt me now. And I'm a good person, never hurt anyone. It needs to be looked into. If I disappear, it needs to be looked into. Okay? Smallpox blankets, wet blankets, all that. And Ellsbury, are you kidding me? Thank you for your comments. Good afternoon, board. Uh, my name is Chris Ward Klein, and just wanted to talk a little bit about technology. Today, another Target closing. Banana Republic closing, another good restaurant closing. I'm going to make it very simple for every, everyone in here. I have a document here from February 6, 2013 from the Department of Justice and the FBI. It was unclassified and law enforcement sensitive. It is now public, um, public record. Um, it is the technology called a Stingray. And this was uh, specific for law enforcement for lawful purposes. Unfortunately, the mayor got a hold of it and she gave it to civilians. And they deployed it on large, swaths, um, large groups of populations in San Francisco. Line item two, the San Francisco Police Department assumes responsibility for operating the equipment technology in accordance with federal law and regulation and accepts sole liability for any violations thereof, irrespective of the Federal Bureau of Investigation's approval. Um, you're not gonna like what I'm gonna say next, but she put it on every single one of you. It's technology that can influence you, it's illegal, it's unethical, and it needs to be looked into. I've already filed complaints with the Department of Justice to do that for you, but it really would probably be better coming from you as well. Um, and since we were talking about public health, public health knows this, they have similar technology. Um, a lot of people that are struggling, it's because they have a stingray placed on them, cyber stalking them, and they have anxiety, increased anxiety, when it's someone just trying to influence them for politics, to vote for them at all costs, or they don't get anything in return, no benefits. That's all I have. Um, if anybody wants the document, I'll send it to the Board of Supervisors. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Okay, does my time start now? Or? Now. Okay, thank you. Um, Firstly, I want to say I love San Francisco and I believe in the heart of our world-class sanctuary city. It has been said the health of the city can be measured by its local and street art, which is one reason why I'm here today. 
My name is J.D. Katena. I am a number one best-selling author and artist and former government social worker currently pursuing a secondary degree in journalism and art history. I am writing a news article on Mayor London Breed's recently unveiled $15 million art revitalization plan, which includes a partnership with the Mid-Market Business Association and possible collab with CCSF. So this initiative is part, as you know, part of Mayor Breed's larger plan for the city, emphasizing five key priorities, but none of which overtly champion the arts. The focus of these funds are predominantly going to 15 pre-selected organizations and appear to be focused mainly on the funding of high art and investing in real estate. More specifically, $15 million is just a drop, is just a drop in the inkwell of San Francisco's $14 billion coffers. The central question remains, what is the fate of the artist in this narrative? Why are well-funded organizations like the SFAC, the Strand Theater, Asian American Art Museum, part of the 15 programs receiving this million dollar allocation while struggling artists and independent galleries are left with the art campus closure of Fort Mason and professors and students have to double their bedrooms as an art studio. Is this really about arts revitalization or taking advantage of talented artists um, which is who have the most to lose and often do? As history tells us, the initial burst of funds can spur on an artistic revival, but when the tide recedes, artists and gallery owners often find themselves high and dry. Um, so, oh my gosh, but like, so are this just more economic development with a little art thrown in? Um, and more importantly, uh, a professor said, America likes art, but not artists. So the path, um, one thing, uh, the path is not paved with fleeting gestures and pork belly spending, but with genuine commitment to the life force of the city, its students, its artists. It's about forging connections, sharing experiences, creating community where the thoughts and ideas inspire others to change. Why not provide arts education? Instead of brushing artists aside, what if City Hall allocates the paintbrushes so the artists of this grand city can paint the future as we are all desiring? Thank you for your Thank comments. You. All right, next speaker, please. Madam Clerk, can I present something? Yes. Okay. There you go. Just center it as best you can. Thank you. Uh, Hi, President Preskin and Supervisors Luke Bornheimer. I want to thank uh, Supervisor Preston for his leadership on the resolution uh, for a citywide no turn on red policy, and I urge all of you to support or co-sponsor the resolution. Allowing turns on red is an outdated policy that makes streets more dangerous and stressful for people. Uh, implementing no turn on red citywide will make it safer, easier, and more comfortable for people to cross the street, as well as make our streets safer and more predictable for drivers. Thanks to uh, the leadership of then Supervisor Haney, SFMTA implemented no turn on red at 50 intersections in the Tenderloin in 2021, and the agency's evaluation of that implementation showed, and this is critical for all of you to hear, 92% driver compliance with no turn on red with nearly zero traffic enforcement in the city, in addition to an 80% decrease in closed calls and a 72% decrease in drivers blocking or driving through crosswalks. No Turn on Red has been studied in various cities around the country uh, over the past few decades and shown to increase safety for all people, especially people walking and people on bikes, but also car drivers and passengers. Unfortunately, SFMTA doesn't currently have a citywide No Turn on Red policy, but the agency can approve and implement a policy immediately. Supervisor Preston's resolution helps raise awareness about the need for a citywide policy and encourages SFMTA to approve and implement a policy immediately. I encourage you to support or co-sponsor this resolution and join the call for a citywide no turn on red policy in order to make it safer, easier, and more comfortable to cross the street in our city and make our streets safer and more predictable for drivers. Um, for anyone who wants to support the no turn on red uh, campaign, you can go to ntorsf.com and send an email. 
Thank you. Thank you, Luke Bornheimer, for your comments. Next speaker. All right. Hi, my name is Maya Kasherin. I'm an electrical engineer and a parent of two SFUSD alumni. Thank you, Supervisor Engardio, for, for um, this ballot measure. Ten years ago, um, city supervisors tried to advocate along with families not to delay Algebra 1 to no avail. The district wasn't tracking before the delay, and they hadn't been for years. Everybody was placed in Algebra 1 in 8th. Now everyone is placed in Algebra 1 in ninth. My children straddled this. My son was the last with Algebra 1 in 8th, and he was able to get to calculus to 12th. <clears throat> He's now an electrical engineer. I paid for my daughter to take an online Algebra 1 class when she was in 8th, concurrently with 8th grade math, so she could take geometry in 9th and calculus in 12th. She's now a STEM college senior. Common Core 8th grade math is not equivalent to Algebra 1. STEM professors from Stanford, Berkeley, UCLA, and Harvard wrote to the SFUSD math department saying, quote, the Common Core 8th grade curriculum is not comparable content-wise to an Algebra 1 course contrary to what is suggested, end quote. This letter also references the district-created compression class, which tries and fails to combine Algebra 2 and precalculus as, quote, antithetical to responsible preparation. It is not equitable that people with resource have access to pathways that those without don't. Not everyone wants to go into STEM. However, those who do, especially the socioeconomically disadvantaged, should have the same opportunities as their privileged counterparts. When I was 18 in 1982, you didn't need high school calculus. Now many STEM colleges look for it, and so many students apply with it as mine did. We need to diversify the field. We need to make sure that all district students who want to go to STEM colleges are prepared. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Welcome. Hello, my name is Susan Fong Wong. I'm a resident of District 2, and I'm the parent of three SFUSD alumni. Okay, I'm not gonna repeat everything that was said about eighth grade algebra because it's true, so I won't waste everybody's time. But I will say that I looked at the uh, last year's uh, SBAC, or uh, the latest state standardized test results, and it indicated 40% of seventh graders in SFUSD passed the proficiency test. That's level three and four. So that translated to 1,250 students that were quite prepared to take eighth grade algebra. And if you multiply one point, I mean, 1,250 times nine, roughly, that's roughly 10,000 uh, 10, students over the last nine years who did not have the opportunity to take eighth grade algebra in our San Francisco public schools. Okay, just think about that. That's 10,000 students that you made them waste their time. They were quite prepared. So I want people to know that it impacts real people. Okay, so that's number one. And also, equity acknowledges that all students can learn math in every grade, especially in elementary and middle school. SFUSD, by default, has given up on economically disadvantaged and undereducated students. The achievement gap seen in black and Hispanic students shocks the conscience of all caring adults in this. It should, okay? And what are you gonna do about it? Okay, we've already heard a number of times that the city has a $14 billion uh, budget 
just throw a few million our way so that our eighth grade students can take it. And also the SF, the, uh, the school board should listen to what we have to say. And I support putting on the ballot in March 2024, uh, eighth grade algebra issue. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Hi, my name is Chanel. I'm a parent advocate of two um, SF San Francisco Youth High School District boys. Um, thank you, Supervisor Ingardio. Ingardio. Ingardio, sorry, mm -hmm. apologize. Dorsey, Melgar, Safaye. Safaye. Safaye, Stephanie, for coming together to make this algebra one ballot measure happen. Um, I'm not a fan of um, politics into the school, but this is all hands on deck. The citizens of San Francisco won algebra first back in the eighth grade. It has been a decade of damage since the district moved algebra one out of eighth grade and parents are leaving. This move will help motivate the district to do the right thing and give kids the opportunity to, to take algebra one in middle school. Um, I have a son, he's in, he's in seventh grade and he is so smart and he can do this. He can do this math. He can do this and I don't want him to be um, discontinued of not doing this math. My hope that he'll come back um, eighth grade math because um, he's a brilliant student. And also I have parents though I know that are dedicated into public school but they want to leave or they're thinking about leaving because there is no eighth grade math. Their kids are just as intelligent, just as as of my son. And I urge you to bring this measure to happen. Thank you so much. Thank you for your comments. All right, next speaker, please. Hi, my name's Jeff Lucas. I'm a resident in District 7. I'd like to thank uh, Supervisor Ingardio, Malgar, Dorsey, Stephanie, and Safai um, for introducing this. We recognize that you do not control the school district. Um, I'll be over there in a couple hours talking to them. Um, you represent the city and, San and county of San Francisco. We are here to support the ballot measure to bring algebra back to middle school. The ballot measure sends a, me a message from the city that San Francisco values math. That's what we want. We want that message to come out. San Francisco values math. Um, we'll skip a bunch. It's already, um, Given the opportunity, kids are capable of mastering Common Core Algebra 1 before ninth grade. Working around the school district's ban, my youngest child did just that. And by today's age cutoffs, she would have been at seventh grade at the time. Her 98% score on the math validation test was not too shabby. Kids are capable of doing the math. But not all students have that opportunity. All students should have that opportunity. I urge us, the city of San Francisco, to send a message to the school district that San Francisco values math. No one should tell kids that they can't take math that they are ready for and want to take. Offer algebra in middle school. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Well, good afternoon. My name is Rex Ridgeway. And first of all, I would just like to say of all these young people here, this is great. I just want to say fortune favors the brave, and you guys are our next leaders. So I just want to acknowledge you guys. Um, Supervisor Guardio Stephanie, 
uh, Milgar, uh, uh, Catherine Stephanie, uh, and Dorsey, you five, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Danka, merci beaucoup, shay shay, aligato, gracias, gracias, spasibo, prosim, adobado. I just said thank you in nine languages because this and San Francisco has ended up worldwide. People all over the country and outside the country, like in England, has picked up on the sadness of eighth grade algebra Outer one not in the eighth grade. So I'll cut through because a lot of people have already talked about something, but this is very important. Because they moved eighth grade algebra to the ninth grade, they had to squeeze and create a hocus pocus course called compression course. It's a little bit of algebra two, a little bit of pre-calculus wrapped up into one course and the math departments of Stanford, UCLA, UC Berkeley, and Harvard wrote a letter in June 2022 to the district saying this course is BS my words, but that's, that's basically what they said, okay? And here's the thing, at Lincoln High School, a math uh, 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 teacher who teaches the compression course told her class that it should be banded. That is a teacher who's, te of course, I'm not gonna name names, but the teacher told the compression course that she teaches that this compression course should be banded because you cannot teach a little bit of pre-calculus, a little bit of it, to get the calculus. So what you guys have done is helped us put major pressure and embarrassment on the school district to put out. Thank you. Thank you, Rex, for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon. Please give me extra time today, because first time I'm going to speak on school board. As Supervisor Malagard spoke about missions from the district in Fremont, I live in Mr. District Fremont. My two daughters graduated from their school. One did computer science, other did biology. They did in honors. My son is in 12th grade. He wants to go to Ivy, John Hopkins, or George, Georgetown, Washington. But I don't have money. I lost my house because of taxi medallions. Empty sucks our blood. Our children are brilliant, believe me. But our life is miserable. So now I speak, but Fremont School District is excellent. I urge you, you should, all supervisors should visit Fremont School District and Mission Snowsy High School, number one. And you should visit my city, Chandigarh, in India, where I cracked down your Uber. Uber is not, not allowed in my city because mayor of this city is my college mate. He listened to me, but you guys don't listen to me. I come here, you know, every... Uh, meeting, but so okay. There's no transparency in the survey of MTAs about taxi business. Their false estimations unacceptable. Victimization of the taxi drivers at hands of rideshares. Uh, like thousands of taxi drivers. Um, I'm sorry, thousands of Uber drivers are pitting against us. It's a daylight robbery on taxi business. Central City shows solidarity with rideshare drivers did nothing for us, it's a disgrace. Price of taxi medallion in New York City is $200,000 because I want to see college for my son. I had opportunity to go to the other cities. I've been to New York, Boston, Chicago, Washington DC, and Princeton, New York. So I saw taxi drivers are so happy, they have a smile on their face, they make money, a lot of tourists, but this city, we lost tourism, we lost. Thank you for your comments. 
speaker's time has concluded. Yes. Thank you. Neurosati bus bus. So I urge you, please bail us out and ban rideshare pickup without TCP at the airport. How do you All right, that's enough. Thank you. Good afternoon, Matt Sutter. You guys obviously know who I am. You can also see how pissed off we are. Um, you guys can do nothing. You can do nothing for us. Uh, Supervisor Peskin wrote a resolution to the bank and the MTA to get something going. Have you followed up on that? Have you followed up on the resolution that you wrote? Any of you guys? It's frustrating. So now there's a pilot program that City launched to put Flywheel on the Uber platform. Can you believe that? And we sat down with the Uber representatives and they said, no, we can't give you the meter rate, but we can pay you more for surge price. So they're encouraging us to charge them more than we're regulated to charge. Does that sound even right, guys? Now, four months later, I was bullied by my company not to speak and fight what they're doing because, yeah, they're going to make money off of it. Everything's money. Look at the London Breed comment. And the sweeping of the homeless, yes, I don't like the tents, but it's true. They take it away and just kick them to the curb. A convention comes in, what do they do? They sweep them down to 8th and Mission Street, 9th and Market. It looks great. And then what happens after? We just let them go back on the streets. And we're making strides. I will say we're making strides. Now, the city, after four months of this one-year pilot program, which always means forever, wants to make it three years. You can't even get through the first damn year. Now you want three years to screw me. And they're doing this upfront pricing. If you take a taxi, you know what a price is. We have a meter, guys. This is not a brain science. They're pushing us into being Uber. I'm tired of San Francisco feeding these tech companies because once they're done sucking us dry, they go to Nevada, they go to Idaho. Thank you, Matt Sutter, for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, and uh, Mr. Ann Paskin and everybody, all the board of supervisors, good to see you again. And the same issue, and everybody knows what's going on with the taxi community. And uh, I mean, like, I really wish you guys give us, provide us the justice, because working 18 to 16 to 18 hours every day, not giving time to your family every day, we did for one year, I thought we got, you guys got to solve our problem. It's been gone years and years, and we're still there, and we're still torturing our bodies, pushing ourselves, even with the diabetics, with the blood sugar, and with the cholesterol, and with the arthritis, everything is coming and getting us. So you have made like a millions of decisions. So this decision is really, compared to other decisions you made, is nothing. But they will make our life very easy because we have a family, but we don't see our family. What, what time I go home, they're sleeping. When I come from work, they're on the school. So we're just missing all the living life of our part, living in a beautiful country, living in a great city in San Francisco, and I mean like suffering every day with the stress 
and getting claustrophobic, sitting in the cave for six hours, going walking, cleaning cave, everything. Then after six hours, we get our ride. But believe me, we, as you guys know, everybody else knows that we, taxi culture is dead. It's only technology, which is good. But please, I just want you to bail us out. If it is not like uh, Mr. Paskin did sometime last time for murdering the P-Mila in the airport, but still we're waiting for six, five to six hours, sometimes sooner. If we do a little more push, probably we'll be able to make some more money unless before we get bailed out. And thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. My name is Autumn Loyan, and I'm here in support of Supervisor Ingardio's measure to can bring algebra pull, back. Can you just pull that microphone close to you? And yes. I'm starting your time now. All right. My name is Autumn Loyan, and I'm here in support of Supervisor Ingardio's measure to bring algebra back, because delaying algebra has consequences. On my way in here, I was speaking with a college student just, you know, just before this meeting. She was shut out from algebra in middle school, and it derailed her dreams of attending a competitive college. She had to dial down her hopes, and it still hurts today. I don't want San Francisco's kids to have their dreams derailed. I want them to have the same opportunities as their peers down the peninsula. Many San Francisco families leave the district in middle school to get those opportunities. They want their kids to have access to algebra because it opens doors. This isn't a small problem. One in seven public school fifth graders leaves the district for middle school. Let's bring those families back by bringing algebra back. Now, it's true that the school board will be voting on algebra next February, but even if the district votes to bring algebra back, the ballot measure is necessary. You see, back in 2018, the district agreed to bring back neighborhood schools. It's been five years, and we're still waiting. I don't want that to happen to algebra. Every year of delay means hundreds of kids left behind. That's a betrayal of our principles, to give every child their chance to succeed. Put algebra on the, ba on the ballot and let the voters bring algebra back. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. All right, next speaker, please. Welcome. Hi, Board of Supervisors. Thank you for the opportunity to speak, and also I'd like to thank you for putting the uh, eighth grade algebra back on, uh, onto the ballot. And I want to say a special thank you to Supervisors Engardio, um, Dorsey, Mandelman, Stefani, Safai. Uh, it's Stephanie and, and Safai. Stephan, Stephanie and Safai, excuse me. And, and Milgard as well. Um, the importance of, of, of algebra in eighth grade is, is, is showing that San Francisco does care about education. We've had eighth grade, al we've had algebra pushed to, to the ninth grade since 2006, in 2014 and it hasn't produced the results that we had hoped for. And the test scores and the opportunity gap, which used to be called um, the achievement gap, has not improved. And it's time for us to redirect our course and let the school board know that it is necessary to have algebra back in the eighth grade. And I think that it's, it's a wise move to put the ballot measure in front of the voters, to send a message to the board, to send a message that, that the voters care, and San Francisco does care about the education of our youth. Thank you again. 
Thank you for your comments. Let's hear from our next speaker. Welcome. May I please have the... Um, yes, okay. just place it. Try to center it. There we go. I'm starting now. Thank you. Hello, my name is Christine Lindenbach. I'm a proud graduate of Lowell High School and a resident in, of District 7. I'm going to dispense with thanking all of the sponsors so I don't screw up the names. Um, I would like to point out that when I went to Lowell High School in 1989, uh, you can see that I had to actually move the, um, put my own dot here. We had 65,000 students in the SFUSD. I'm so old that this chart outdate does not even include my demographic group. We need our Board of Supervisors to send a message to the Board of Education and allow the citizens of our city to do this. Math matters, algebra matters, centering our education on all students matters. Algebra literally means the reunion of parts. It's an Arabic word. Math is a language. It's a language that it derives from a place where there are no borders or boundaries or countries. It is universal to all people. And when we speak about education, we must not just speak about black people or brown people or girls or boys. We must speak about all people uplifting everybody so that everyone is eligible to participate in STEM. In most unified school districts in California, algebra is mandatory in the eighth grade. How can our students compete? If people are moving out of San Francisco at this rate, how will we fill the homes that we need to build? Please stand in front of San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge with a big sign that says, come back, we are fixing middle school. And please start holding hearings every quarter with the Board of Education to take on transportation and other items to make sure that everyone gets to school and is supported. Thank you. Thank you, Christine Lindenbach, for your comments. Like Next speaker. Yes, we'll come and collect that from you. Thank you. Mr. White, welcome. I object to the cuts proposed for Mr. Scott, the police chief, and his lower level staff. Every time there's a negative multi-million dollar cash flow, you want other people that don't have nothing to do with the problem to pay for it. For example, each and every one of you board of supervisors got a salary increase of $1,500 per month. You got it during the tax cuts of President Trump, a combination of your high taxes that can only be afforded by the multi-million dollar high-tech companies. You ended up with the largest amount of money in the city accounts that you had in the history of the city and county of San Francisco. Cohen and herself passing out money like candy being passed out to little kids who are trick-or-treating on Halloween. And then you turn around when you have a 780,000, strike that, $180 million negative cash flow, you want people who don't have nothing to do with the problem pay for it instead of you. You have been paid and wasting $165,000 a month. You multiply that by 12 because it's 12 months in a year. That's $198,000 per year between all you board of supervisors being overpaid. There was no reason for you to get that salary increase. Your workload didn't increase. 
you're doing the same amount of work now that you was doing then before you got that salary increase. It was unjustified. It's a misappropriation of funds and an insult on everybody's intelligence. That's a total of $792,000 a year. And about this drug addiction problem, I told you about that, and you still wouldn't pay attention to me. You're talking about a safe injection site, ain't a damn thing safe about your staff being present while addicts is using drugs. Now you got the highest overdose rate in the United States. I used Dorsey as an example to have a type of rehabilitation centers that he went to. You got a situation enjoyed by high-income bracket people, but not low-income bracket people. And he Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, I'm Mr. Williams, city worker, just like you are. Uh, just regarding reparations, uh, there's no amount of compensation that could repair that damage, but uh, let's at least make it reasonable. Uh, five million, it's uh, like a drop in the bucket. Uh, that's the Jews, and there's no excuse not to pay uh, cash reparations. The Jews got it, the Indians, the Chinese, on and on. Jews right now today still get annually. Look it up. You know the history. They're getting almost $2 billion annually right now today. been getting it since the Holocaust. And that's been divided between less than 50,000 Holocaust survivors. And right now in San Francisco, we only have 4% of black residents left here. So you, you don't have a whole lot to pay here. Say if, say if I got a million dollars, right, in my pocket right now. I'm still homeless in San Francisco because I can't buy a house. A house is two million. Huh? Think about that. Now, uh, so there's really no excuse for that. And then uh, you know, banks closing, malls closing. It's, it's like a ghost count. you got to restore the economy. Uh, this is, people are... are the, the, it's running rapid. Crime is running rapid. It, what it would do, if you did pay reparations, it would cut crime 50% across the board. Think about that. What, you want to feel safe going out to your cars? Yeah, crime will be cut 50%. And then, uh, I mean, you got to, to restore the economy, revive the economy. If you pay that, you can revive the economy and make this world a better place. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Williams, for your comments. Next speaker, please. SFGov TV, can you just zoom out a little bit so we can see a bit more? All right, if you could begin your comments, I'll start your time. Okay. I'm gonna start your time now. My name is Salah Hakuya Chandler, and I am an abolitionist and a social justice fighter for my people, for my nation to make a better Humanity, and also the mother of Yalani Chinya Marinde, who was murdered the San Francisco quadruple homicide on January the 9th, 2015. And that was eight years 
in eight months and also moving, and yet I'm still waiting for a trial date. I am the only mother out the quadruple that have never missed a court date going to court every two weeks, almost going on, you might as well say nine years now. July 1st, 2015, Miss Katie Steiner, bless her soul, was murdered at the wharf uh, by an immigrant, and her case has now been closed, solved and closed. Her case was six months after the quadruple homicide, and we're still waiting. Now, the unfortunate thing is that it's obvious that it's racism and discrimination here. And we as a nation is not being acknowledged. And it's because a nation without the knowledge of self is like a true tree without roots, which means culturally, if you are totally erased of your cultural ceremonies, your sacred language, which is a connection to the spiritual realm and taught that you was nothing but a slave and worthless, you're not going to be able to stand and be able to fight and represent the way we need to. Many will show up, fill the house when it has to do with money, but you notice it's almost none of us is here. And so it's going to be very few of us. And because I stand in the name of Yahweh, our Elohim of the Tetragrammaton Hebrewism, I have the strength to stand even of the murder of my child. And I will not stop. I protested for a week and one day with the district attorney, and they have now assigned me to meet with her on the 29th. I want to leave you with this. This is written by... George Washington. The power under the Constitution will always be in the people. It is entrusted for certain defined purposes. Thank you, Sella. <coughs> Thank you, Sella Hakuya Chandler, for your comments. Next speaker, please. Um, hi, my name is Ellie Smith. I'm a D4 resident and a former student and graduate of both the public and private school systems here in San Francisco. Um, I don't have any specific statistics to cite, but I'm just here to profusely thank Supervisor Engardio, Supervisor Safai, um, and I hope I got the other three correct, Dorsey, Stephanie, and Melgar, um, for um, touting, um, you know, supporting the ballot measure to put the option of algebra back in the eighth grade. Um, I remember when I was a young student in the public school system, I would, I would frequently get in trouble for um, daydreaming, looking out the window, and not paying attention in school. And it just happened repeatedly. And uh, looking back, um, I realize now that a lot of the cause of that was, you know, um, not surprisingly, I just wasn't really being challenged in school. So um, uh, I'm a big proponent of allowing kids to take courses that challenge them to their fullest extent, whether it's in math or any other academic subject. Um, we don't want kids finding, you know, at, at the very worst, finding kids, uh, finding school to be boring and dropping out um, or not feeling the pride of being challenged and um, not feeling the pride of succeeding in something that they knew, either knew they could master or thought they couldn't master. Um, or especially, we don't want them experiencing the tragedy of not being quali even qualified to apply for a top college of their dreams. So thank you so much to the su five supervisors who are endorsing um, putting this on the ballot and putting this more challenging math class um, at the eighth grade level uh, for those who desire to take it. Thank you so much. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, board. 
As sure that all of you know me already, my name is J. Connor B. Ortega, and I'm co-president of Iconic D3. I've spoken to a lot of working-class residents and tourists who are trying their very hardest to make their experience here in San Francisco the best one ever. It used to be where small shop owners had nightmares in their sleep, but now the nightmare happens while they're wide awake at work. Smashed windows, property stolen, fronts vandalized, and in some cases, owners murdered. Our tourists are treated just as bad as residents are. These tourists are people who could have chosen anywhere in the world to spend their family time with, and they chose San Francisco. They came here with belongings, and they will leave without them. And why? Because out-of-touch leaders believe it's the fault of the people themselves that they became victims, not the fault of the perpetrators. Now, I used to be homeless for 20 years, and I never thought my biggest fear would be if the business I work at would be shut down because of the theft, because of the crime, and because of the inaction of this elected body whose job is the care and safety of this city. Some say that businesses have popped up around the city, and that's true, and that's good, but it's not enough if more are leaving rather than coming in only for new businesses to follow suit and leave as well. Now, we don't suffer the gun violence like Chicago or the constant chaos like New York, but we suffer from the emboldened criminals who keep committing crimes because members on this board would rather coddle them than contain them. This, to me, is very unacceptable. Fix these problems, or in 2024, the very people who reside in the city will do that. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Hello, board supervisors, everyone. Of course, you know who I'm ace on the case. I'm here to talk a little politics. Politics is full of tricks. Sometimes it makes you turn to a lunatic. I want to talk about reparations. In the article I read, there are clusters of, all of y'all supported, but clusters are saying something about the mayor. And they're saying, oh, the mayor is not supporting the reparations office. Oh, the mayor is not giving the blacks the money because she says it has to come from the feds. So the bottom line is I'm going to have to do interviews with all of you to find out what the, what's going on. Because my name is Ace. Bottom line, and then the president says the, the, the droppings from the tree that it has to support reparations for the uh, Fillmore Heritage Center. That comes in the Fillmore. Okay, I'm the Fillmore Corridor Ambassador, and I've been around for 20, 30 years, shared some tears, but that center should be ours completely anyway. But... We're dealing with housing, health, education. Uh, the, the population is going down. Ain't no doubt about it. In politics, we're getting ready to go into election year. A lot of y'all can't talk about politics right now. I can say what I want to say, public hearing. I'm here to support London Breed, without a doubt, Queen Bee from Fillmore. And, and y'all saying that she don't want to support the, the issues. She's black. How in the hell she don't want to support it? She probably can't come out and say it right now because politics is full of tricks. It makes you turn into a lunatic. But I'm here to say the reparation must. I don't know what y'all plan on doing. You, you haven't passed it. Uh, you ain't got the money to do it. And the bottom line is our people want to know what's going on. And I want to know about my five. Say no job. I want my five. Now, my great-grandfather was George Washington, 
and I'm the father, and I got three generations under me. I want my five. I'm just talking, but I do. My name is Ace. I'm on the case. Thank you for your comments. Any other member of the public would like to address the board during general public comment? All right, seeing no one get up. Mr. President, we'll head over to the remote call-in system. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Okay. Let's hear from our first caller. Caller, welcome. Are you with us? Yes, I am. Good afternoon. You know who this is. I'm calling in remotely because I just don't feel like showing up in person. First off, fuck the eighth grade algebra ballot measure. It's a stupid idea to be putting this on the ballot. All it is is tossing the political football for something that SFUSD equity advocates need to be a major partner in. Also, fuck the bullshit ass mayor's announcement about cutting tax assistance for those who use drugs. I am a cocaine user myself, but I've never bought it myself. My BSF, she gives me cocaine when we're hanging out. I am not an addict. But even if you are assistant is, isn't the solution. I second Supervisor Ronan and Chance comments. Also, fuck Supervisor Stephanie's crocodile tears around the uh, family. We all know that her wealthy neighbors are having raging coke parties in their mansion, but she wants to crack down on poor and working class people who do drugs. This is 2023 San Francisco. Not, not Sarah Clinton triangulation bullshit or Florida or some other red state. Y'all gotta stop shaking your ass to be around the fans. I yield my time. Fuck you. Let's hear from our next caller, please. Hello, caller, are you with us? Ladies and gentlemen of the board, good evening. I stand before you today to discuss an issue that affects each and every resident of our community, the state of our public transit system. As our cities grow, so does the need for a reliable, efficient, and sustainable transit network. Firstly, let's talk about accessibility. Currently, many areas of our city are underserved by public transit, forcing residents to rely on personal vehicles. This not only exacerbates traffic congestion, but also limits opportunities for those who cannot afford a car. We must expand our bus and train routes to reach these areas and offer more frequent services, especially during peak hours. Secondly, affordability is a concern. High fares discourage people from using public transit leading them to opt for less eco-friendly alternatives. I propose that we explore options for subsidized fares for low-income families, students, senior, and most importantly, immigrants. We need to purchase as many cattle cars as we can and ship these niggers and kikes back to their homeland where they can run rampant That's like terrible. the savages. Uh, can Ladies, we just cut that uh, collar off, please? That's terrible. Can we hear from our next caller, please? Caller, are you with us? Welcome, caller. Perhaps that's an unattended line. Let's go to the next call. Yes. Welcome, caller. Are you with us? Good hello. afternoon. Yes. Uh, uh, hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Welcome, Chris. Okay, how much time do we get? We're setting the timer for two minutes, Gilbert. Okay, thank you. Uh, good afternoon, Board of Supervisors. Gilbert Criswell, District 8. I want to show my support for Supervisor Dean Preston and his legislation to have no turn on left and hopefully no turn on right neither. He's a transit first 
supervisor that supports transit riders and transit in the city, and we need his support uh, for this legislation. I hope other supervisors will follow along so that pedestrians can be safe in the city. Uh, Meany only cares about fare hikes and service cuts. Uh, we need a transit system that works and not a malfunction, dysfunction at Muni. Uh, and I also am disappointed uh, that billionaires like Elon Musk and millionaires are putting bounties on supervisors' heads and elections to interfere with our elections. This is what happens when billionaires and millionaires run rampant in the city and have control over tax code, planning code, fire code, and now corporations are writing their own traffic codes in the city. We need a city that works for transit for everybody, not the super rich. Thank you. Thank you, Gilbert Chriswell, for your comments. Let's hear from our next caller, please. All right, welcome. Supervisors? Yes, hello, Mr. DaCosta. Please continue. It's a little bit confusing today. Okay. Uh, you have heard when the mothers ask you all for help because their children have been killed. You have heard uh, the taxi drivers plead their case. What I see more and more when I listen to y'all is that y'all have no empathy. Have some empathy on those who are suffering. That's all I got to tell y'all in the two minutes that you've given me. This city has lost its conscience. Have empathy on those who ask for help. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. DaCosta, for your comments. All right, let's go to our next caller, please. Uh, yeah, hello. I hope I'm coming through here. How long do I have? You have two minutes. Okay, good. Um, general comment, right? I could talk about whatever. Generally, yes. I'll start your timer now. Okay, good. This is, all right, yeah, this is within the purview of your group because, A, I'm going to talk about the double standard um, and discrimination being used against white people. Also, I'm going to be talking about your algebra um, discussion. I think it's important that we teach math early because these um, kids are learning math way too slow to be competitive. Um, it's bad enough that they're living in that city, um, you know, filled with these type of influences, like the people who've been calling. Um, I guess you could say words like fuck, but um, you can't say um, the Yiddish word for circle, which is keikel. And somebody said that, and then you cut them off. Um, you know, the, this is the reason why the Jews were called that is because when they came into Ellis Island, they wouldn't accept uh, X on their hand. Hold on a second, please. Hold on. Um, what I'm talking about is it's discrimination being used against white We're people. We're going to go to the next caller. We're going to the next caller. All 
right. Welcome. Hello, Claire. my name is Br Thank you. My name is Brandy. I am a public school parent. I am sorry for all the um, horrible comments people have had to um, hear, although it doesn't surprise me that this is coming from our proponents of eighth grade algebra. Um, we, our kids, I'm actually, unlike most of the callers, I am a parent of a middle school child, and I see the curriculum. SFUSD revamped its courses so kids are learning um, algebra in kindergarten. And um, I wish that the supervisors would talk to Supervisor Walton, who has actually had experience working in our public schools and also eight years as the Board of Education and as the president. This has been a very successful um, curriculum for our students. A lot of um, schools around the United States want to copy it, and we don't need to take the district back. This is essentially a segregationist policy, which segregates many of our children um, with learning disabilities into different classes instead of having them learn side by side in our, with their peers. This has been, again, I, I really appreciated all of the work that's gone from our teachers, and I think this is disrespectful of our, of our math teachers, many of whom have seen the benefits. I, I don't see any um, teachers here, and I think this is so disrespectful to have created this legislation without our math department involved. Um, this is just an, you know, many examples we've seen of um, teachers being disrespected in the United States. We saw this with the recall, and if you care about numbers, We've had teachers who, because of the superintendent and our, um, that was chosen by our, um, our per-recall um, school board, we have teachers who have not even gotten paid because we have, unfortunately, um, an administration that has not, for the last year and a half, been able to figure out their payroll. So I, I don't really think that our per-recall folks are the people to look to when it comes to um, matters of education. Thank you for your comments. All right, let's go to our next caller, please. Hey, community, it's your favorite, favorite San Franciscan in San Francisco. So let's run through the numbers here. So last month, there were 84 fentanyl overdoses, uh, approximately 3,500 plus deaths since 2017. It's more than 9-11, more than the 06 earthquake, and more than the U.S. military lost in Afghanistan. To date, in the city, 2023, there's been 40 homicides, 165 rapes, 2,000, over 2,000 robberies, uh, over 1,700 assaults, and 5,000, over 5,000 motor vehicle thefts. So that this is a concerning issue. Apparently, the police department's uh, scared to confront these, these matters. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled about protecting oneself through the Second Amendment. So the state of California is due for many, many lawsuits with the recent legislation legislation and people should not be grandstanding on the dead so like ronan's always grandstanding saying about these poor people well you know it's been going on for six seven years now so nobody did anything about it nobody was bouncing off the walls back then so oh, i mean you can't fix it five years six years ago you can't fix it now so just leave just give your keys with regards to algebra Anything and everything could be learned online. Kids can go to Little Einstein. They could get, actually in the fifth grade, they could learn algebra online. So the internet offers a wealth of learning for even for languages, 
Spanish, any, any language you wish to learn. Uh, and finally, with regards to the um, upcoming elections, nobody should be grandstanding again on all their issues that they have outstanding. We hear so much grandstanding. And quite frankly, Dan Lurie should be mayor tomorrow. Uh, Breed needs to turn it in the keys. I mean, she wants welfare recipients to have drug testing. Well, that should begin with her and the whole BOS, the whole board, because Thank you for there's your a comments. lot of really, really. All right, let's hear from our next caller, please. Hello, good afternoon. This is Barry Toronto. I'm calling because I had an experience the other night that raised some issues that ought to be addressed by you sooner than later. I picked up a couple in a taxi from the Opera House, and I took Market Street down. And as we were passing 7th and Market, the uh, passengers were appalled at what they saw there at 7th and Market, the, uh, the outdoor um, uh, fencing operations that were going on and the hundreds of people gathered for whatever reason. Uh, it, it, is not a good, uh, uh, it is not a good image for San Francisco. And then we see stories about people whose items were stolen and brought to San Francisco for, for selling to other, other people who would sell to other people. There is a law that says possession of stolen items is against the law. So, but the problem is, is why isn't it being enforced? The, the person whose items were stolen, the camera equipment, were, uh, was told that there was a, that, that, that the, uh, the 300 block of Leavenworth is a major fencing operation. But why don't they do anything about it? Why, why do they let it just stand? Yes, there are tents and there are some of these people's are homes, but there's also some criminal activity going on underneath those tents. Why is that not an important issue? And why is that allowed to become the image of San Francisco? So tourism is down. Businesses that rely on tourism are having to go out of business or, or take less money or, or, or become impoverished, including the taxi industry, which, which, which relies on the tourism industry uh, especially the, uh, the people working the airport, there's not as much business at the airport. So I beg of you to, to, uh, to work with the police or to urge the police to do something about this, this criminal activity going on the streets but still have compassion for the homeless people. Some of them may be criminals. Thank you very much for your time, and I appreciate you taking this more seriously. Otherwise, San Francisco will continue to be a decline, you, especially as a tourist spot. Thank you, Barry, for your comments. We have five callers who are lined up, but if you wanted to speak, you should press star three. There are two callers in the queue, and we're going to take this last group to the end. Let's hear from our next caller. Welcome, caller. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, my name is uh, Kai Cater, and uh, just wanted to touch on the topic of reparations since I heard a few people bring that up earlier. And... Um, I just don't feel like white Europeans should have to pay reparations when all the slave ships that brought the blacks here were Jewish-owned ships. So okay. all right. Jews bring all right. blacks here. And uh, Next caller, please. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to um, address that as well, that, these vermin kikes brought the niggers, and they can pay these niggers. Right, okay, I am now, let, let's be clear. I fought to have unlimited remote public comment. 
I will be introducing a change to the board rules. It is, this will be done. Ain't gonna happen in these chambers in the city, it is over. Next speaker, you are going to be one of the last remote public speakers that we will have. Go ahead. Mr. President, that was the last caller in the queue. Public comment is closed. Madam Clerk, if you'd please prepare that change to the board rules, and if you would read the adoption without committee reference calendar. Noted, Mr. President. Uh, items 27 and 28 were introduced for adoption without reference to committee. A unanimous vote is required for resolutions on first reading today. Alternatively, any supervisor may require a resolution on first reading to go to committee. Supervisor Walt. Please sever item 28. On item 27, same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Madam Clerk, would you please read item 28. Item 28, this is a resolution to accept the final San Francisco reparations plan of the African American Reparations Advisory Committee. Supervisor Walton. Thank you, President Peskin and colleagues and public. I just want to again reiterate my thanks to the African American Reparations Advisory Committee, the Human Rights Commission, the entire community, including numerous amount of allies, my team in the District 10 office, and of course, all of you for the dedicated work on achieving reparations here in San Francisco. This resolution to approve the final reparations plan from the African American Reparations Advisory Committee further solidifies our commitment to reparations. As we work to get the Office of Reparations up and running, our continued commitment to this work is imperative. I wanna thank co-sponsors, supervisors Ronan, Preston, Peskin, Chan, Mandelman, Melgar, Safai, and Dorsey. Thank you. Supervisor Melgar. Thank you, uh, President Peskin. Um, I just wanted to say thank you to um, the Reparations Committee for all their hard work, but also just taking so much um, abuse and toxicity uh, for doing a really good job and doing exactly what we asked them to. Um, and I also want to uh, say uh, particularly thanks to uh, my colleague, Supervisor Walton for his grace and elegance uh, through this process uh, and his leadership um, through you know what has proven to be uh, an unacceptable level of uh, just vitriol uh, over just accepting a report uh, of something that we asked a group of citizens to do on their volunteer time unpaid. But I wanted to, uh, since you know we're talking about math <laughs> a lot this meeting, I wanted to do a little bit of math because I, like many of you, have gotten a lot of emails and correspondence about this resolution. Uh, I just want to uh, remind us, uh, going back into San Francisco history, uh, in 1957, uh, San Francisco was able to woo the Giants from New York uh, to go into the new Seal Stadium. Um, and their star center fielder, Willie Mays, and his wife, Marguerite, started looking for a house. Turns out in my district, in District 7. Um, and they put an offer down on a house at 175 Miraloma Drive, um, which uh, is in Sherwood Forest. If you know, it's tucked away between Miraloma and St. Francis Wood. Um, and uh, all hell broke loose because there was tremendous pressure put on the owner of that house at 175 Miraloma to not sell 
to a Negro family. It was front page of the paper in the Chronicle. Mayor Christopher got involved and uh, tried to uh, get folks to uh, calm down. He even offered a bedroom in his house uh, for uh, Willie Mays' family, which of course they turned down and they eventually found a house somewhere else. But if you do the math, so that house was listed in 1957 for uh, $37,000. $37, That's how much a house cost back then. So that house today on Zillow is listed uh, between $2.7 and $3.12 million. That's how much that house is worth. Had that family been able to purchase that house, they would have paid it off uh, in uh, around 1978 if they got a 30-year mortgage, which means that for six decades, that family would have either had no mortgage or been accruing rent, rental income from that house. And so you do the math of what that opportunity denied by the structural racism in our city, in our city, not going back to anywhere farther than 1957, then you know you can see uh, how we can arrive to a number like what was in the report, which was only one of the many, many recommendations, but it's for some whatever reason the one that people have fixated on. But so for that, I wholeheartedly um, support uh, this resolution and uh, thank the efforts. And it is only the first step towards a very long road of apologies and reparations, which we as a city owe our black community. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Melgar, Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you. I just want to make sure that I'm added as a co-sponsor. Shall noted. be noted. And on the resolution, same house, same call, the resolution is adopted. And that brings us to the conclusion of our agenda. Madam Clerk, would you please read the in memoria? Today's meeting will be adjourned in memory of the following beloved individuals on behalf of Supervisor President Peskin, for the late Mr. Auden Schrader, on behalf of Supervisor Walton, for the late Mr. Reynard Hillis, and Mr. Francis Ho. We are adjourned. <laughs>